This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Evan. I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Will. We talk about Red Plenty by Francis Bufford. Uh, this is a book, not a novel, I guess. A uh, fairy tale, um, uh, science fiction thing, um, uh, history. Just because he, he says it's, it's not a novel doesn't mean that it's not a novel, right? I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah but is it a novel? Well, I think I'd call it a novel. I'll call it a book because I think the novel format is very old and no longer novel. Um, it is, I, I, as Brian, no, 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 as Evan was trying to point out before, this is sort of part of a thread that's been going through shows going back quite a ways, maybe back to The Efficiency Expert by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is a novel. Um and then uh, we did The uh, People's Republic of Walmart, which is not a novel, but a very good book. And then we did, uh, what was the one you recommended, Will? Uh, Four Futures? Four Futures. We did Four Futures. I, I also think it ties into um, looking backward and like. Yes, absolutely. And like in a like different way, like The Coming Race, but like just, you know, that's probably not the most thing we want to focus on. Yeah, and way, uh, no, way no, back, really you guys did uh, Iron Heel. which Yeah. So is this a utopian novel? Yes, obviously. Uh, it's a utopian country experiment, national experiment, uh, or international experiment. And, of course, you know, a book like our books, like Marx wrote, are highly inspirational to a lot of people um, who tried to create, you know, national countries out of uh, national, international things out of out of books in the same way that uh, that terrible Vril book, but also very interesting Vril book, The Coming Race, did, right? <laughs> it's not exactly the Nazi's blueprint, but they're definitely picking up what he's laying down and saying, this is real, <laughs> when it's not. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's... In- it's like, you know, the the difference, of course, between like like Marxism and like virilism or whatever is that like, you know, Marx was like trying to like write about like politics and social science rather than writing a novel. So uh, you you've, you've sound like you prepped a lot of stuff. Will um, you were saying, send me the worst uh, takes on communism or the Soviet Union uh, on Twitter. Um, so I, I don't think that this is the best history of the Soviet Union or the Soviet experiment, but I think there's some uh, nice, um, I don't know, feel. You know, it feels. Yeah. Like, it feels like an interesting. Um, it gives you a sense. It's a. It's a. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's a it's a meditation on like, like I really think this is a very personal book for uh, Francis Bufford. That's like. Um, uh, like the read that I'm getting off of it. And like the reason that I like, uh, am able to understand that is because like I've been a socialist for a really long time and I like know about like the different socialist personality types. Okay. And like one of the socialist personality types is, um, like, uh, like person who like really like needs to like take like personal responsibility for things that happened in the Soviet Union, right? Like just like needs to agonize over it for like, mm. like the rest of their life. 
like and like really meditate on it. And I think that that like like that's productive here. He's like doing that productively, but it's also like, um, you know, you like can spend all your time thinking about like, you know, like the blood clogging the drain, um, and like. Mm. You know, um, I think about, uh, like, uh, Pete Seeger and, like, how he, like, let himself, uh, get, like, baited into, like, like, apologizing for Stalin. And, like, Pete hmm. Seeger, like, is not responsible for anything Stalin. Well, that right? seems like, to Pete be a Se- major industry in the world still today, baiting people to try and defend, uh, you know, death camps or whatever. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, and it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of a trap, but, uh. <laughs> yeah, think. <laughs> Yeah, I have this. Uh, I have this mentor, um, a guy named Carl Davidson. He won't mind me telling the story on him. And he was uh, he was one of the uh, national presidents of SDS back in the '60s, and was um, involved with the uh, yeah Students for a Democratic Society. Okay. Um, and uh, was uh, involved with like the National Guardian newspaper um, in the '70s, and just like somebody who was like around. Um, and uh, you know, he tells this story on himself uh, about like something he did in the '80s that he really regrets. And uh, without like really like looking into it, he like published a report from Democratic Kampucha about like you know like the things that were going on in Cambodia that was like that were like really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like you know, like uh, like this is a situation where like the Vietnamese Communist Party had to invade Cambodia to like like put down this bad situation, right? Mm-hmm. It, like it was like like this is not like something that like communists support <laughs> um the uh some did. yeah some did but like it's like it's not like a uh you know this isn't like the the mainstream of the movement was like not for this um so i, I think that that's sort of like you have to like be careful and like like not like paint yourself into a corner of like uh publishing this report for democratic kampucha but on the other hand you like can't paint yourself into a corner and be like Pete Seeger, Pete Seeger, like civil rights activist and folk singer, like taking responsibility for like the gulags, right? Like, like mm-hmm. it's not his responsibility. Um, so, uh, you know, I think this was like a really uh, like productive novel um, to like like think about these problems, and uh, I, I found it just like uh, very touching. Uh, but it's also, I think it's like very much like like one man's like personal meditation about like mm-hmm. his feelings about socialism and like uh, you know like. Uh, I, uh, I was thinking about this in terms of that website that Paul likes, like, does the dog die at the end? Like, you need to, like, <laughs> like, like, uh, like Red Plenty is like, you know, the dog dies at the end, right? <laughs> um, like, you don't need to, like, you, you know about the history of the Soviet Union, so you know the dog dies at the end. Um, and that's like, you kind of, uh, have to, like, like, approach, approach it with all those things in mind. So, um, that's why I was, like, fishing for, like, like the bad, like, Stalin takes, cause, mm-hmm. um, my favorite part of this book uh, is like near the beginning, and it's the uh, when, when like everybody's like writing into the newspaper about like what they want out of like Red Plenty, uh, and it's like yeah, I like want like more of like this product. I want more atheism. I want this. I want that. And like so, what's exciting about it is like people who are like uh, unschooled in things can like really hit on stuff, uh, mm. but they can also like but then people can also just like say like completely stupid things. So I found. Um, uh, you know, like, like I found this discussion last night uh, between people about like whether there will be mental illness under socialism, <laughs> and it's like, what? Uh, you know, so, some person was saying like, if you think you would still be mentally ill under communism, you don't believe in the same kind of communism as me. And wow. like the, uh, the the reply was, well, I'm sure that like 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 Vladimir Lenin is gonna like rise from the dead and like cure my bipolar disorder, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
like 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 it's uh so like people have like like so people have all kinds of ideas about that this stuff and that's like what i think is like really exciting about it but i also think that that's like um what's really truly painful about for like uh people like thinking about like what happened in the soviet union um because like they like um like political millenarianism uh is like you know it's like it's something that like naturally occurs in society but you have to like 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 understand that that like that's what you're doing um or like you know like you're gonna get uh like really disappointed um well that's just kind what of is millenarianism so millenarianism is like so uh like my like uh i think that uh, the trend in politics, like over and over again, is always like people are like kind of like for the end of the world, right? Um, like I would like I, I like say this metaphorically, but like, like I'm for the end of the world, right? Like I don't like um, like I like I don't think this is like set up well. I think we should like do this a different way. Hmm. Um, and so uh, you know, like it ties into like our uh, you know our religious history, and you see it in different kinds of societies. Like there's a um, there was a there's an example in um, South Africa, uh, colonial South Africa, where the like uh, people thought that like what they really needed to do to like uh, to be part of this anti-colonial movement was like kill all of their cows because the world was ending. And so, like they killed all their cows, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, and like but it it like it actually like makes sense because like you're like are like trying to end the world. So basically, uh, I just looked it up because your answer was not. Uh, etymologically uh, thing it makes me uh, so it says something to do with containing a thousand but it made me think of uh, the movie 2012 if y'all have seen that uh, god oh my eyes if only i could get those it's a comedy it's a comedy and it's a good one brian it's not a uh you can't you can't take it seriously the filmmakers are not taking it seriously I started watching it's a guilty pleasure dramatic project. version of it that's called Greenland. It's so done. Oh yeah, with you know. with Gerald Butler, yeah. Yeah, and what's funny about that is it's the same story exactly, um, but they treat it straight up, which is I think even funnier <laughs> because it's all about how you know the government is competent and they know what they're doing and they're <laughs> going to pick only the people who are efficient for creating the new society is very hilarious in that respect the problem is is people don't think that and uh and that's the sad part so um yes this magical thinking i think is very important uh to any of those (laughs) sorts of things and we have to be skeptical that's Um, actually that's actually the opposite um millenarian thinking is the opposite of magical thinking millenarian thinking is religious thinking mm -hmm. uh, and it's based it's called millenarianism because of the idea of uh, of a millennium not in the chronological sense although it's inspired by the times but the religious sense um that the end of the world will come i mean the great example from our time is of course QAnon. Um, because we have <laughs> we haven't had the great storm uh, that would wipe out all the you know pedophiles in their underground bases and all that. Um, you know the the most famous and most studied example might be the Millerites from the 1830s in the U.S. The guys who thought that the you know, the world was coming and when it didn't happen, it was called I'm not making this up the Great Disappointment. Um, magical thinking though is, is is very very different. That's when you know the thing that you do, your thinking will have an impact on the 
external world. If if I <laughs> if I if I think X and Y, it'll happen. It's like um, you know. But, but I think there's bleed over because there's some millenarianists who it's a group. It's a group uh, magical thinking. Yeah, rather yeah than I mean, than... but there's some millenarianists who think that we have to make the conditions right for the end of the world, and that is very much magical thinking. You think that we have to prepare the way for God to end the world. That's that's like the magical thinking of whole magical thinking, like. What do you, okay, I want to. I, I, but I, yeah, I want to. There is a Melanarianism. A lot of this, uh, <coughs> like, idea of a of some kind of harbinger, right? There's going to be some figure that will help usher in this end of the world, right? Oh, yeah. Signs importance, yes. Like that's an Islamic, like, twelfth imamism and things like that. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, what Brian, you know, brought up QAnon, and I I've been thinking about how this will be understood in a thousand years. <laughs> so um, God help us all. And I think it's going to be very simple. It's going to be very similar to what you know. You have all these uh, saints, um, like Saint George. He slayed the dragon. <laughs> um, the dragon was not a real dragon. It was a problem, some sort of issue that was in the collective mind, and uh, you know, some hero out there. Uh, tried to take down the dragon, did take down the dragon, and that's that, right? Trump will be a kind of figure like uh, like a <laughs> well, well, like a St. George, well, right? We, well, we don't, we don't know. I mean, now, now, now I'm, now I'm going to pull in Babylon 5 here. because All, of these, 5, all of these phenomena are like that, is what I'm, I'm yeah, suggesting. Yeah, but, but it's like, but we don't know how that's actually in the cloud, because there's the Babylon 5 episode, Deconstruction of Falling Stars, which shows the future mm. of the universe, and the first one, it's 100 years from now, and even 100 years after the events of Babylon 5, they're arguing about who did what and why and for what reason, and then by the time you get to 500 and later, it's become un. un- varnished myth and garble it's like so we don't know what the events of today are going to look like we can't predict it in any sort That's of my way point, is what? that it, 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 it's going they to may not even be remembered for all we know they may just we may, we may be a footnote in a history text i don't think well obviously or, but or, but or, most of the saints are footnotes right that's my point is that you know you start looking for for these figures and you find them everywhere. They're they're all over the place, all over the world, and they're, you know, they're not historical. You got to mute your keyboard. It's totally fucking up my thinking here. I'm sorry, Brian. Wow. <laughs> I just can't. I can't process because I can hear your your the pop up in the background as well. I'm sorry. Um, it wasn't one of my end. Um, oh really? Okay. Whoever's got the pop. It's like a sounds like a text message anyways let me uh change the subject slightly here um the the novel starts and i think ends with this theory of uh the magical tablecloth which is from russian literature and i just found an example of um uh a little summation of what that is so one of the most vivid images of the russian fairy tales is that of the skatert sambranka a self-spreading tablecloth on which food miraculously appears. All you have to do is unfold it, and a lavish feast fans out before your eyes. Scanzano Stellano. No sooner said than done. Not only can the Sambranca conjure food when it's there is none, 
It also protects against danger. In a classic tale, Ivan Sarovich, the young Ivan encounters wood demons fighting over treasures, a self-spreading tablecloth, self-propelling boots, and an invisible cap. The demons explain the power of each of them. Quote, spread out the tablecloth and 12 youths and 12 maids will bring as much mead and as many sweetmeats as you desire. If anyone should come upon you, just slip on the self-propelling boots and you'll cover seven, even 14, versed in a single stride. If calamity truly threatens you, put on the invisible cap and not even dogs will be able to sniff you out. So I think that this is the formula for this novel. If it is a novel, you've got this idea of the magic tablecloth, the seven league boots, which covered the vast uh, uh, space of Russia and uh, Siberia, uh-huh. yeah, Siberia, right? And we've got the kind of uh, invisible cap is kind of a, a way of dealing, uh, slipping into places where I mean it's right at the end of the book, right? where the scientist sends off a protest letter. Uh, This is how we started the podcast as well, right? Um, A protest letter that uh, eventually gets her fired. And um, if you would just shut up, (laughs) say nothing, as the song... uh, Sit down, sit down, you're rocking the book. Right? Um, You'll be fine. But how long can this magic work? Um... This it's it's very, very interesting because you know, Will, everybody seems to go yes. straight to to the. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. It seems to go straight to um, the Soviets, but there's others. And so one of the terrible tweets you asked for was uh, one million Uyghurs, Muslims in re-education camps, uh, people eating dogs and rats to survive in Venezuela. Um, right, so. Okay. It's, uh, it's uh, if you accept the facts um, as given, <laughs> which I don't. Uh, right, right. But I, I think it's worth. Uh, I like the question that that guy asked, which was, "Do you think you'll like do it better this time?" <laughs> that's right. And it's like, well, why wouldn't we? Right? Like, like that's. Uh, I mean, I know that sounds like really naive, but I want you to think about it for a second, right? So, um, you know, we have like just over a hundred years of like like people attempting to build socialism in various ways like and you know so we have like you know we've seen like the worst versions of that like we talked about Pol Pot earlier right like that's Mm -hmm. like the worst version of that um and like we've also like you know like seen some like truly amazing things happen um in terms of like like industrializing very quickly like this book is very Mm -hmm. focused on uh like the high cost of that and I don't want to downplay that I don't want to like I don't ever want to downplay that um, but like, it's also like, you know, the Soviet Union, like went from like, you know, like backwards war toward country to like, uh, you know, like being like pretty key in defeating Nazi Germany because they were able to do that. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's that's, like not, a mix- that's not really yeah. the subject of the book though. The, the book is, is really focused on the fifties and sixties. It's about Khrushchev and the possibilities that he represented. Um, so it's, it's about the break from Stalin. I mean, you can't shake that in, in, the, in the novel. I don't mean in history. I mean, in the novel, it's, it's focused, you know, the, the memory of, of the Stalin era and the Lenin era is all there. Um, but the real focus, I mean, so we begin with Khrushchev and we end with Khrushchev. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, but the subtitle like, is it's about the fifties, but it's really the fifties into the sixties, just kind of that's just the timeline of, of Khrushchev. And and I think part of it is and this is the real pleasure of the novel, is not just looking at the cost, but also looking at the utopian and I mean that technically, the utopian drive, the the desire for this. The dream. And also the successes, which is well, it's a it's a dream that also has has realities. So we get that enormous I mean, Spuffer, how often do you get a novel that actually talks about GDP data, right? In mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. enormous growth. I mean, when you when you if you want to go back to Stalin, I mean, people usually say you know the two things, the two achievements you can credit to Stalin are defeating the Nazis and industrializing the Soviet Union twice. Um, but the thing that we're looking at here is is the growth of consumer goods, which was a huge huge push uh, for Khrushchev. So weird idea I mean, for a novel. Yeah, it's incredibly it, 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 weird. So, one of the things I, I love. But but if it's mm-hmm. but not just a novel here because it I mean. Because he even says at the beginning, this is, I mean, there are fiction, there are real characters here, there are fictionalized versions of other characters. We break out of narrative characters to talk straight political nonfiction. So it's really a mosaic of a bunch of things that you don't normally get books like this because it's such a but weird it, beast. The book <laughs> that it's most similar to that I've read is that People's Republic is a, a Walmart because they they t- it's exactly on the same topic. It's on how can a command or uh, let's call it a command economy work uh, if if it, it can it work because a market economy has problems. <laughs> we know this. Um, a command I, I economy. A, I, I yeah, want to propose a better way to put it than, than command economy. Or yeah. I think command economy is a useful term here. But uh, like the basic question, I think, is, is it possible to make economic decisions based on politics instead of economics? Planned economy, I guess, would be better. Yeah, 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 yeah planned yeah. economy. But yeah. the, the point is that like, you're trying to put politics in command of the economy. And and how it works and what you get in the novel is the initial successes and then the you know the ultimate failure, um, and that's you know then I, I think in many ways uh, this is a mosaic. It's not quite a mosaic like say Dracula, which is you know a scrapbook. Um, mm-hmm. To me, I think this is right where Tim Stanley Robinson says uh, science fiction and historical novels are very very similar. You know, that you're trying to you know show a world that is either future alternate or past. And at mm-hmm. the same time, you're trying to tell a story, and you do. And again, like with a historical novel, you get real people and you get made-up characters, um, and we get all of that here. Um, and it's, I, I think, as a novel, I mean, I think it's it's very very nice. I mean, I like the characters, I'm intrigued by them, and it's also got that 19th century social novel angle where you get people, mm. you know, you get the leader of the Soviet Union, you get scientists, you get you know people all over the country. I mean, it's. Uh, it's it's very diverse. So, so I, I think in that I, I find it uh, very very satisfying. Um, and the, the focus on the planned economy, I guess, I guess again, one of the things that's unusual about the novel and striking is that it finds it it it, it ends with the failure of it, which is historically recognized. But it also it draws not only the initial successes but the dream behind it. I mean, it, it reminds me of the uh, German philosopher Ernst Bloch. Who had the idea that you know you can find a, a principle of hope in uh, almost anything really, uh, <laughs> you know, a, hope, a glimpse of a of a better world, and you know and finding that all throughout everything from you know trying to figure out how to make that work with algorithms to do we get better sausage to is it worth the sacrifices that we've gone through, um, and I, I find that's why the the begin the framing of a fairy tale is so is so nice because mm. it points to. 
that real th- this is something that Disney never touches and most Americans don't get in our in our <laughs> versions of fairy tale but that hunger you know if you if you look at if you look at the grim fairy tales or if you look at fairy tales from Hansel and Gretel yeah it's actually about hunger i mean it uh, is. it's about i mean so many of the rewards are you'll have a full table or you'll have the wallet that produces you know enough food um you know uh, you have uh, a house made of food yeah yeah and of course the the bad version is where you, you get eaten um that's right uh, where you, you become, become which the wants food. to eat yeah you yeah, yeah. The which wants to and eat that's but that's that that real primal level is so crucial to fairy tales, and I, I think that's that's a, a real a real genius move in this novel. It yeah, is it, 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 it's very yeah, apt. very Russian fairy tale. I mean, you mentioned before uh, at the beginning of this, Jesse, the the, the t- touchstones of Ivan, and Ivan is a name and a character in a lot of Russian fairy tales that later um, Lois McCaskill like stuck Russian version her. of Jack. Yeah, stuck stu- stu- stuck into or bury our novels. Ivan's not the main character except for one novel, but he's kind of like the happy-go-lucky sidekick to the main character who always winds up landing on his feet because that's that's the way that's the way his story goes. Here, this is a much more darker tale that we know at the beginning. At least you know anything about history that this this is not going to end well. But it's the fascinating journey of how it tries to end well and fails. I was thinking you were making me. You were mentioning Kim Sterling Robinson, Brian. The other author I think of here is is uh, John Brunner and like novels like Stand on Zanzibar, mm. which kind of mix yeah. in. But though it's set in the future and now an alternate present, it's still trying to mix in a little bit of nonfiction. I mean, in the very strange, weird, newsy format, the nonfiction along with the stories of Hogan and all the others that are mourning for the novel. He's trying to show how this wor- this future weird future world of his works in a in a meta level but but robinson was robinson said he's been influenced by brothers so it's kind of and that goes all the way back goes to who um john dos passos so there's a whole line of stuff here i'm sure i'm sure francis has read all three of them but what you don't get is you, you don't get the uh the formal um uh, style of dos passos and brunner with but, you know the rapid yeah it's very stylized yeah it's, it's well very, this you know this reminds me I mean, I don't know Spufford, and I don't know how he how he created the novel, but it does remind me of Soviet film, um, and it does to a degree remind me of some Soviet literature. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know to what extent that's intentional. Um, uh, I have not read enough Soviet literature to yeah to I I, I they, they they do they do mention the they do mention uh, the Strzokowski brothers, which I appreciated, which was a nice yeah. little reference there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the Strogatskys are great. Um, I think it but, has the humor, the the Russian humor. It's very dry. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, um, yeah, very, very mordant. Yeah, very, very mm-hmm. arch. <laughs> well, we just so uh, you guys have been talking about the the kind of dark end of this this novel, and it's certainly there. But this is why I think the People's Republic of Walmart makes such an interesting sort of sequel to this. Mm-hmm. And I just watched uh, a video. I was just searching for reviews of this, and Jack did a talk with uh, Lee Phillips and some other people about this book. It was just like last year. So, uh, and Lee Phillips was one of the authors of that People's Republic of Walmart mm-hmm. book. And what you find when you read that book, and I think it was only me and Jesse on that. Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. Right? I wasn't on that one. For yeah, whatever reason. I but like these. Uh, Kantrovich's ideas, like the linear programming, it's taught in business school now, right? It's mm-hmm. it's standard operating procedure for big firms. 
right? And like John Kenneth Galbraith, which I reviewed in a in a podcast a while ago, is like new industrial state, which is all mm-hmm. basically the argument of that book is the U.S. economy's planned, and that was published in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I haven't I haven't read People's Republic of Walmart yet, and I'm, I'm intrigued it's by great it. Book. You got to do it. Thank you for the pointer. I, I get the verso sales, and and that's always a good way for me to impoverish my family, but. Um, I, I think you know the the novel reflects that you get the um, uh, comparison of the Soviet Union uh, as a corporation that's said several times, um, mm-hmm. and that's interesting. Um, and and there's also I, I think there's a kind there's an argument which says that you know Kantharovich was was too early that uh, you know this was uh, this was the kind of cybernetic yeah. idea that could have worked later. And you get this in Chile. Yeah, that's what he that's what they're arguing. The people's Republic of Walmart, mm-hmm. like the math wasn't there, uh, and yeah. of course. You know, the revolutionaries and, in the early Soviet Union, that wasn't their – they weren't economists. They weren't and, they and were this making is, computers. They were trying to survive, right, and keep the regime. And this uh, is also what I'm – Making up as they go. What I'm what, – what's always left out, you know, when somebody tweets a million dead under socialist regimes, a million Uyghurs in re-education camps, people eating dogs and rats in Venezuela, what they always leave out from these stories, right, is – well, there's an there's another player, right? Cuba, uh, Cuba's basically em- embargoed from the world, right? They have to do everything themselves. It's very difficult because you know they don't have all the resources that a uh, vast continental-sized country like the Soviet Union had, or like the United States has, or China has. Um, and yet somehow they are still communist, and somehow yeah. they are still operating and they uh, they're operating uh, it, it reminds me so much of um of that uh uh ted sturgeon story um microcosmic god where you've got uh this mad frankensteinian doctor who's trying to invent technologies and the way he does it is he creates a race of tiny people and then starts oppressing them Right, literally has a, a, a clamp coming down to crush them, and they have to build uh, aluminum rods that are lighter and stronger out of whatever materials are of, at hand, and then he uses that. Right, and to me, this is like this is evident in all sorts of places. So, I I, I had a thesis in my head early this morning. I thought, oh. Maybe maybe uh, I should look to where the Russians were not really successful. I was thinking, what could where was that? You know, where, where the Soviets weren't really successful. I was thinking, how about car racing? Right. <laughs> this is something that manufacturers all over the world are interested in. But I never, you know, during all these Le Mans and you know all these all these race car racing things all over the world, um, I don't remember a lot of Russian cars. Right. You know, there's the Germans, the Japanese, there's the Italians, there's some American cars in there. Right. Everybody's competing. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out they were doing that. They just didn't. You know, it was not their major focus. But if you look at aircraft, it's hard to argue that the Russian, you know, military aircraft are worse than anybody else in the oh. world. In fact, they seem to be pretty much better. Well, and if you equal think of two or better, rockets, I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's like, what I'm saying. Like even today, they're they're uh, you know they're MIGs and they're SU, SU whatever. Yeah, well, they're just really that's, amazing. That's, right? that's part of that's part of the uh, that's part of what Spufford is describing is is kind of the opposite. Uh, I mean, you know, Khrushchev's 
role was he, he was obsessed with uh, the political might of what he called the steel eaters, which is a great way of describing the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he wanted to do something else, which is one that's one of the explanations for the Cuban Missile Crisis is that instead of spending zillions on uh, building a new wave of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, you could basically create a, a cheap version by putting medium range missiles in Cuba. That's um, right. And then save more money so people could get, you know, better apartments. And I mean, and one of the things is the Soviet Union was terrible consumer goods. Uh, and this was true throughout the Soviet world. I mean, if you look at the Warsaw Pact, even if you look at the uh, semi-allied uh, Yugoslavia, um, again and again, that was. And so this, that's the dream here. Like the the early description. I'm trying to think which chapter it is. Um, the early description of the uh, of uh, what became you know the kitchen debate. Um, you know, the Soviets saying you know, we could make this. You know, we could make great. You know, uh, uh, cooking uh, cooking ware, and how the U.S. just completely outflanks them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's and that's you know, and this and this ultimately led to Khrushchev's defeat. Um, by the way, if if I haven't recommended this enough, you know, just I just have to say the movie Death of Stalin is fantastic. I, I was gonna I was gonna bring up Death of Stalin because I rewatched it this weekend because it's brilliant because I but, thought it'd be perfect for to talk about in this show. And I found I'm listening to this and listening to them talk about Khrushchev as being a half a little peasant from the outer lands who became Moscow, and that's so. At odds with the Khrushchev we see in Death of Stalin, because um, yeah. because uh, what's his name? Uh, Steve Buscemi basically plays him as a hyperactive New Yorker type, and it's ho- he's yeah. hilarious at it. But it's complete. As I was listening to the books, like that's not the Stalin I remember from this movie. And I watched the movie, like it's a very different Khrushchev that we but, see. But don't forget that last bit, right? Where you see victorious Khrushchev up there in, in the balcony, and behind him two rows. Brezhnev looking at him, yes. Right. Who will who will help uh, uh, unseat him? Um, yeah, it, and, in about yeah, about seven years. The other movie I rewatched yeah. this weekend, and as it was only really for one line, was Network. Yeah, a lot line. of rewatching for one line. What? Well, 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 be, 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 because because when Beale yeah, was YouTube. Be, because when Beale, well, I had a copy of Network, and I'm rewatching really, well, watch it anyway. So when Beale is brought into uh-huh. Arthur Jensen, and George, Arthur Jensen says, "Do you think the Russians are si- sitting in their boardrooms?" Discussing Marxism, no, they get out their linear programming charts and just like right. we do, it's right. like, yeah, yeah this that's like right. that's exactly the thesis of this novel, this novel book, right there, mm-hmm. right there in that 1973 movie. But uh, let's uh, let's address that that idea that you know the problems of of uh, world communism, and there are you know we don't talk a lot about Vietnam anymore. Um, I guess they're communists in the same li- way that the Chinese are. Well, they, I think they're also they mildly pro-American at this point because because yeah. China it, because China's sitting right there and China and Vietnam have been fighting for a thousand years, so you know. Um, well, I don't know if it's fair to call Vietnam like pro-American, right? It's well, just well like at least you, at least oh, the, the, the like quasi. Like, yeah, I mean they're playing two big powers off each other. That's what small countries do. Yes, and they they went through in the 1990s. They went through a version of Glasnost called Doi Moi, um, and it kind of succeeded, and then they kind of pulled it right back. Um, and so, you know, they're they're trying. They're they hate to say that you know they deny saying this, but in a sense, they're following the the Chinese pattern of uh, trying to participate in the global economy, but still maintaining uh, you know communist party control and also as much of its ideology as possible. Um, yeah, they absolutely you know dis, you know despise uh, China. I mean that's that's one of the just great you know deep hatreds in the world. 
Um, and the, uh, uh, but but yeah, it's it's an interesting. Experience. I, I would also point to um, another thing that Kim Stanley Robinson and I share, which is a love for uh, Mondrian in uh, Spain, um, which is very different. I mean, that's an anti-authoritarian yet uh, collective enterprise that somehow managed to survive under Franco and still exists. I mean, I've met some people from it. You know, it's a very, very interesting idea. Robinson has a a novel that I don't like too much, but where he has the human civilization divided into two parts, Mondragons and uh, basically uh, neoliberals. Um, (laughs) There there are all kinds, but but I, 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 I think I think Spufford is really focused on just this particular period and uh, and in this particular setting so, so closely, so much. I mean, it's a it's a deeply Russian work, although it carefully includes all the other nationalities, the 14 other, you know, republics that were part of the Soviet Union. Um, I think it's 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 very specific. I I hesitate to extrapolate beyond it, in part because you guys have all enjoyed this People's Republic of Walmart that I haven't read yet. Uh, so I can't inflect it that way. Um, but I, I, I do think it ends with a, a, he's recovered a gleam of hope um, that he you know, wants us to think about and, uh, and you know, to see you know, is this kind of thing possible. Not Stalinist. Definitely not Stalinist. Um, it's something I, there was a joke. I remember. Uh, I'm sorry. My Russian is so bad now. I can't tell it in Russian. But the idea was if uh, if uh, Lenin or Stalin hated you, you'd be killed. You'd be shot. If Khrushchev hated your performance, you'd be fired. If Brezhnev hated your performance, you'd be allowed to stay in your job until you retired. <laughs> it, it, it's, as, as Robin Williams says, Russian jokes don't have a punchline. Um, you, 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 you just kind of laugh afterwards and you chuckle in appreciation. Um, but the, but it's 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 true. I mean I mean you know that was a, a huge a huge shift. And so I think Spufford is very careful to excavate that moment of hope of the late 50s and early 60s. Who Who is the character who we will call him the black marketeer? That's not what he would describe himself. Yeah. But that's so, what he well, he's the pusher, right? The the, the buyer agent? Yeah. He's a, he's a salesman. He's, a, he's one of the made-up characters. Yeah, yeah. so uh, although I've, I got the sense that that was one of the made-up characters, I also get the sense that, that he's standing in for a hell of a lot of yeah. people. A hell of a lot of people. my favorite section of the book. Cardboard. It's a very interesting section because it's very real. Um, this, is, this is actually uh, largely, I think, how all systems work. So um, Every Brian, system has a safety you, valve. You should care about this a little bit. One of my students uh, t- texted me on Skype um, uh, to say, "Hey, I'm, I'm I got a unofficial offer from Harvard to get into their PhD program." I'm oh. like, "I'm like, uh, congratulations!" And he says, "Thank you so much for teaching me, or whatever." And I was like, "You're welcome." <laughs> um, now, the thing is, is this is the goal of every Chinese mom, <laughs> right? They want to send their kid to uh, Ivy League University and get them into the reins of power somehow, get them into the prestige, get, you know, be able to say to the other moms, hey, I'm very happy to say my son is now at uh, Oxford, which he was before, <laughs> or uh, at Harvard and uh, in the University of Chicago or whatever it is. And they, they're they really happy about this um, because it means access to the reins of power. Mm-hmm. And the access isn't, 
uh, because, you know, you come out of that university with the degree in hand. It's because you're one of us now, right? Um, now, the way you get in is you do amazingly well on, on the uh, the exams. Um, you somehow uh, can afford the, to pay for it or you're super rich. Or you, um, I don't know, somehow are a legacy, legacy, right? Yeah. Right. Um, there's all sorts of different ways. But the important part is getting in there and getting it done. Because this is some sort of something like an economy, right? Uh, the school system. And it's rigged in the same way <laughs> as the Soviet system was that required these sort of black marketeers whose job it is to sort of get things in. So uh, you guys probably don't remember this because it's so long ago, but uh, I was fairly interested and amused by the scandal where a bunch of uh, celebrities were getting uh, yeah. ripped, a- ripped off. A- Aunt Becky with the good bribes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so, Varsity Blues was the name of the scandal. <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking the more recent one. The, the recent um, one, yeah. What's, no, that's uh, what it was called. It was the, oh, uh, was it? the FBI called it Operation Varsity Blues. Uh, uh, and uh, and yeah, it was you know, those of us who work in, in higher education in the U.S. knew that this was you know just the tip of the iceberg, really. Sure. And uh, and part of it was I mean I loved reading the FBI accounts they published because they they read so novelistically. Yes. The, you know all the different you know it was some of the some of the parents who were you know, completely committed to this and demanding behavior, and some of them weren't so sure. And the uh, and the scam artist had to you know had to talk them into it. And then uh, all the elaborate dances with college athletics. I mean, it was a a, a very American story. My daughter's a, a professional rower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she has the rowing machine. Look, and and here's her Photoshop. I mean, yeah, but but let me let me ask, Will, what 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 did you what did you all I guess like so much about the chapters of the Black Marketeers? What was so appealing about them? It's very real, is what I I was thinking. So the and and I'm. I don't know where I I've seen it before, but I've seen it in when he gets picked up by the cops and they're a little bit drunk and mm-hmm. they take him off to the woods for what would we call it? And uh, I don't know. There's a shakedown. Yeah, it, it, it is a shakedown, but it's not exactly a shakedown. It's also like a, a lashing out. Right. Yeah. Um, a beat down. In fact, Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a threat. I mean, it, it was entirely possible. I don't, as I was listening, I, I like, this character was, was going to die. I think it was just, spontaneous. Like, we don't see it from the cop's point of view, but I, I get the sense that it was like a spontaneous anger, right? He comes up in this beat-up car, says, we're going to take you for a ride. They go out there. It wasn't like he uh, – he probably just had a really shitty day not getting in the allocation that he wanted, right? And he knows there's this guy who has a special arrangement with his boss, right? This kind of special arrangement shit – is basically what greases the wheels in. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking like a Pete Buttigieg, right? If you know anything about his uh, his Mayor Pete scandals, they're all like this, right? You know, he fires and hires based on not you know what's needed by the community, but what'll grease the wheels? What'll get things done, right? The the that that's very very real, and. What's weird is whenever you have a a I don't want to call it a command economy, but whenever you've got some sort of weird economy with perverse uh, incentives, those things will eventually work their way out to be exploited very effectively and efficiently. 
and I it'll think, become I, natural. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's endemic of every economy ever, capitalist, communist, monarchical, what course, have you. Always well, I, let me take a, let, let me take a crack at this. Um, I think that what's interesting about it is like, so it's like, um, so it's like objectively interesting to like, see like, uh, like polite people, like interact with impolite people. Right. Or like, like, mm-hmm. like you to see the, like, um, you know, like communist officialdom interact with like these criminals that like, you know, like that they actually need, right. Mm-hmm. Like they actually need these criminals. um, and uh, so, so that's interesting. And it's a I think like why it's a compelling story is uh, so like, you know, um, uh, I'm going to attempt a little Marxism here. Um, so if there's like a system and like uh, the system is like, you know, like, you know, that the system is going to be dynamic. Right. Because there's no uh, there's like no system that's static. So a system's going to be dynamic. And if, uh, you know, uh, you're going to like figure out what a system is going to become, you can like look at the contradictions <laughs> in the system. And it's just like. Oh, like the criminals, like, you know, like they became the main economy, right? <laughs> like, like that's, uh, they like, uh, like that's what happened, um, is mm-hmm. like the, the leadership yeah. like decided to go over and like, Oh, what they're doing is better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Happened, I mean, like happened it's, in, just, it's happened in China during the, um, um, seventies as well. Um, I mean, and also in the fifties in China, I mean, this is, this is one of the great charges against uh, command economies is that, they just seem automatically to give birth to incredibly robust black market sectors. Well, but I, I want to bring it back to like the education because this is this is like the industry I work in. I, I work in it in a very weird way. Evan, you work in it in a, in a more conventional way, but still rather odd. And Brian, this is your meat and potatoes, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm thinking about Felicity Huffman, for example. <laughs> she, uh, I'm not a big fan of her work, but I, I think her husband's made a lot of good movies. <laughs> and their daughter was one of the people who was, uh, I believe it was an SAT. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that was one of the, maybe that was one of the athletic ones. But basically, this is a bunch of rich people who need to get their kid, who is otherwise not qualified into a Ivy League university or, or some sort of university because it's the thing that needs doing. So the way people make money, and if you look at like who was convicted, it's both people who are using the services and people who were um, pr- offering the services. It's it's all a scam, right? So if if you're a regular person and you don't follow the rules, um, basically what happens is um, you don't get in. And if you're a rich person who follows the rules, you can uh, do a bunch of things. One, you can hire uh, a Jesse to help your kid excel, right? And that kid, uh, that kid will get the benefits of, you know, being having a tutor, which is it's like having a teacher whose job it is to help the kid get good grades, right? Um, or you can. Uh, do like Evan, you're doing it on more mass scale, right? With well, this whole classroom. What our school school does, right? So right. we actually have more counselors than than teachers at our AP center, and their whole job is to put together applications, right? So one of the big tensions in our AP center is is about grade inflation, right? AP being so emails like, oh, this student has is got a got a C plus or a B minus, and this is not going to look good on the our application, so then we get subtly pressured to the counselors, a little bit. not the students, right? The students well, obviously through, they'll do that too, but 
Yeah, they 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 beg for grades and stuff, but they don't. You know, the the real pressure comes from from the bosses, right? But we send our our kids to top. Well, that's what we say, top fifty, whatever that means. Top hundred schools, top most. I think they're pretty much all top hundred schools. Again, whatever that means, some ranking. Yep. That's yeah, there's a ranking. Did. But, Which is uh, also well, like quite a lot to top fifties, and they they don't really deserve it. They're taking slots from probably more deserving kids that don't have the advantages of having a team of counselors to put together their applications and help them write their and, admissions. And then compare help. this to what they do for the Soviet Union's um, the Soviet Union's education system. Right, everybody goes to university, but you can't do humanities. <laughs> You can't do history, you can't do philosophy, you can do engineering, uh, not much chemistry, you can do uh, more engineering, you can do uh, basic science, but not not biology, right? You and can then, do philology, you can do languages. Right, uh, and and you can do, you, you can do it, and it's cheap, and everybody does it, and this is how you get this massive, you know, flood of highly competent, highly skilled people, and then, you know, you're chopping people down at the top as well. Which uh, I don't think we're doing uh, well. I guess we do. Cancel culture does chop a few people, but it doesn't cancel enough. Like Stalin, you know, and Purge. Yeah, that, that, that's Stalin the problem with cancel culture <laughs> is that it doesn't cancel enough. <laughs> <laughs> cancel more, uh, make more rooms for for people at the top. Well, that is that is that is one thing that that sociologists observe. If we can be really clinical for a second about. Mm-hmm. And Swafford mentions this, that in um, during the purges and during the war, that uh, you had incredible mobility up and down ranks. Um, I mean, you know, it can be funny to say this. Well, you kill a lot of people, you know, but but it's it's also it's also true. And you expand a lot of operations. And that really, you know, obviously that slows down after after Stalin when you don't have purges and you don't have the war. Um, but, you know, you're 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 right about education. Um, I mean, that's that's one of the. Uh, uh, I mean, one of the huge successes of the Soviet Union was just to massively expand education. I mean, you think 1917, you've got a country that's overwhelmingly peasants, right? and, and incredibly often very, very removed physically uh, from centers of learning. And they succeed in, in massively educating the population. And one of the strengths is in the sciences. I mean, which is, you can see this today. One of the reasons why you have so many uh, programmers coming out of the former Soviet Union is because you had so much mathematics being taught mm-hmm. so extensively. Um, but to go back to the to the, the black market, um, I, I, I think that's, um, you know, I can't help but think of uh, the character in Catch-22, right, who becomes Shah of Iran at one point because he's constantly trading back and forth and back <laughs> and forth. I mean, that's a, that's a very realistic character. And you, and you find this you find this in anti-Soviet Soviet literature. Like, um, I just finally read Kolyma Tales, which is just absolutely heartbreakingly brutal. It's about uh, life in one of the worst camps uh, in the Soviet Union. And, and you get that, you know, constant, you know, black market people trading anything for anything. So if, if you talk to uh, free market economists, I mean, they'll insist, and, you know, libertarians, they'll insist that this is why the market is something that uh, should be central to social organization, um, because it's that you're, the humans just will do it. Um, and the more you set up a, a, a command economy, the stronger the response will be. Um, you know, you, you can go back to the U.S. where we had the brief experiment with the um, NRA, not the not the gun association, but the uh, uh, Economic Association under FDR, and uh, it was it was a massive failure, and again provoked people to trade all around it. 
Um, so that argument is is there. I mean, that argument kind of haunts um, uh, Red Plenty, I think, in many ways. I want to point out that there's a. Um, it's it's pretty funny. There's an episode of Deep Space Nine, and I just finished rewatching it recently, in which Nog um, demonstrates this system, and he does it within the context of, uh, you know, something they do is, on. Is Ferenga that the Union one? No, it's called Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. And the Great River is basically what he does is he makes relationships with other – he ingratiates himself uh, with other Starfleet officers. Um, and then they swap things that they need, right? So he d- he doesn't do this for his own personal profit. He's trying to solve Chief O'Brien's uh, problem of getting some, like, holograph – I don't know, deck plating gravitation – for the but this is the one where he wants, he wants the gift for Cisco, right? Uh, at one point in the episode, he he actually trades Cisco's desk to somebody. <laughs> Cisco goes away so that the guy can take he, some Starfleet officer who wants to have his photo taken behind behind every famous uh, Star Trek officer's desk, and he'd like already got one with Picard's desk, and so he shipped it off. To, while Cisco's away on Bajor, he ships off his desk um, to get this photo. And so it, it, it's like a comedy version of what we actually see here. And I'm not an, I've never been in the military, but I spend a lot of time reading and paying attention to small, uninteresting things to most people. And I get the sense that this happens a lot in the military as well. So you've got um, some supply officer who has some product that he's got for his unit. Um, another supply officer over there, he's got, I mean, this is, this is actually where, if you remember Parker, the character by um, Richard Stark, that's actually his backstory is during world war two. He was, he was selling uh, Jeeps to the Nazis <laughs> trading. <laughs> and it's just, it's cause he's a criminal, right? Um, but if you, if you're in supply, you have you're a quartermaster. Your job is to get get stuff to the right place at the right time, and a little bribe here or a little bribe there will get that done. And this is common throughout any system, I think. But is it the case that the the Soviet system collapsed because there was not an ex? It's a very weird thesis I'm going for here, but there was not enough external pressure from the Americans, where there is like so much external pressure from. Uh, the Americans in Vietnam and Cuba and now in Venezuela, um, did the external pressure keeps the people more united? You see what I'm saying? Like it seems like the there was a the Cold War was a pressure, but it actually was not as pressured as you might think compared to like the way they treated Cuba, the way they've treated uh, Venezuela, are treating Venezuela, the way they they treated Vietnam, they fucking and you know <laughs> invaded that country, right? Um, is is it an, an internal pressure um, being contained and making the system work despite the problems, or is it like some fuck up? Like because I think there's a lot of merit to what Marx is saying, right? But I also see any system <laughs> is corruptible, right? And obviously, yeah, I, I think this is kind of universal. Jesse, I, I agree with some of the, what the others are saying. This seems kind of universal in systems. What I really liked about this part four is that you start with, with this um, Volkov, whatever, this Gauss plan guy, right? Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. 
kind of a knack, uh, this kind of neutral guy, right? Who's just figuring out the plan. And there's this problem that comes up, right? That equipment's broken or whatever. And he kind of tries to spread out the pain, right? Yeah. A little bit among different groups. And then you, you get the middle managers who are like, Oh, what are we going to do about this? Right. So you get that little chapter, prisoner's dilemma. Whereas mm-hmm. the middle manager is basically sweating this problem. And then you get to Chuskin, right? The the big the bulk of that section is Chuskin's story and his involvement with the black market and trying to, you know, call these different people and meet with these different people. And he has a side quest with the with the police. You know what I thought about in all this? I kept thinking about, like, the wire, actually. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like very much you get so. these mandates from the top, right? That's so much part of that. That's story. right. You get these mandates from the top. And then you got these middle managers who are trying to figure out how to get this to work. Do you just lie on the stats? Uniforms you, just show you create up. And a, don't, you create a don't free know how it all works. Whatever exactly. you, you know. And I, I do think it's kind of universal. I, I don't know. That, I guess I, I do have this question when I was reading the book. Like, I don't feel this book because ex- it's. I don't think it's his goal, but it doesn't really explain why all this failed. No. It's no, he doesn't go into like, the like, why. Why did uh, the? Like, I think if he's pointing to anything, vision didn't it, work. Uh, it, it's it's not buying into the plan, right? That's the yeah. explanation. Not buying the plan completely, just having the guy come yeah, in yeah. to write a paper saying that they're doing good work. And I mean, it makes. I can't. I, it's really funny. I um, <laughs> will. Yesterday, I was playing PUBG, and some rando. Starts talking about um, <laughs> about communism. It's really in the air. <laughs> I didn't bring it up. <laughs> um, well, and, yeah, start- no, and there's a reason for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> so the, the, my point is, like, why, why are people talking about it? Is because it's becoming a genuine option at this point, right? Uh, the the forever war uh, in Afghanistan is is continuing. This is the theoretical cause of in many people's minds of why the Soviet Union collapsed, that the, their war in Afghanistan was too much. Right? It was just too much, too, too, and too many people didn't like it. That's, I mean, we don't get that in this novel, right? It's all after. Um, but I'm not satisfied with that as the complete thing. But what I do think is there's, there's kind of a, like, when the top people are giving up too much, <laughs> basically, they don't yeah. care. They don't care. Yeah. So the description of, of Khrushchev and the description of, I mean, you see it in the pattern of even the conversation, right? Going, uh, Stalin cares a lot. He's wrong about stuff, but he really cares. And then Khrushchev comes in and says, well, we're not going to do what he did, but uh, I care too. And then <laughs> Brezhnev comes in and says, I'm, I'm more of a, of a, an ideas man. <laughs> I'm, I'm a psychology guy. So whatever you're talking about, it's very interesting. But, <laughs> but, but so, it must be said that Brezhnev lasted longer than any leader except Stalin. So, you know, he was about what he did. <laughs> so yeah, my, point, he, my point is we, a, a while ago we had, you know, Reagan as a president. And a lot of people weren't happy with, you know, that. And then uh, Bush, he's he's competent. He was head of CIA. And then we get, you know, a, a competent governor. Um, uh, he knew what he wanted, right? And then we, oh, we're back to being competent again with uh, the uh, after the second Bush. We're back to being competent again 
with um, Obama, right? A competent manager. My mom's still listening to his 25-hour book. Um, it's the latest 25-hour book. And um, and then uh, we get <laughs> the clown president. Um, and now we've elected uh, – I say we – uh, now they've elected somebody who basically nobody's arguing isn't demented. He's not demented, Jess. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I promise not to discuss politics with you on this podcast anymore, so I will stop. Well, maybe someone else can argue it, but I'm pretty sure um, nobody's saying, you know, this is definitely this is definitely a guy who's got everything going. For him. So if you're interested in why communism or communism talk is spreading now. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons for that. And I guess one, um, you know, but in relation to the book, I think in some ways they're, um, uh, they're kind of different. Um, you know, one, uh, the book is talking about in many ways, private desires and private pleasures and people's desire to live a physically better life, materially better life and how it plugs into the overall mission of the Soviet Union. Uh, but now, I mean, we're in part one of the reasons we're talking about this is our sense of overall despair at the broader systems um, that they are failing in terms of climate change. They're failing in terms of economic uh, inequality, um, and that that is something which is making us consider alternatives, especially people under fifty for whom they don't have the Cold War training. And uh, yeah, indoctrination. Is more like it. I mean, it, it, it was it was incredibly uh, powerful. I, I think about all those movies I watched where, like, I was thinking about that movie Firefox. Do you remember that one with Clint Eastwood, oh, sure. where he yeah, sneaks into, into Moscow and he's he's well, just walking into the bathroom in the in the subway. It's like so fraught, and I'm like thinking about it now. It's like um, probably it wouldn't be like that. <laughs> I mean, I know he's a spy and everything, but like he's got so much sweat on his upper lip from somebody just coming into the bathroom. Well, <laughs> it's such a weird idea because he's going to steal this amazing Soviet aircraft, right? Um, but that sort of that fear of the oppression, Gorky Park. You remember that movie? Oh, such a oh, that's a great movie. Soundtrack. Uh, uh, but it's 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 all a fantasy in a certain sense because. What was really going on is it's kind of like that, resembles that, but it's not always winter in Russia. <laughs> in the movies, it's always winter in Russia. Well, it's like, you know, what day is it whenever a movie takes place in, in Mexico? It's always the day, <laughs> right? You know, um, you know um, but... Uh, I, Ryan, I, I, your, folk, your, your mention of, uh, of, like, just base pleasure right that's the dream where the the the, mm -hmm. the tablecloth right like mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. the goal right so that's why i think this at first i didn't quite know what was going on with that chapter psychoprophylactics the, the galena's mm -hmm. have giving birth it's like what well, what's this chapter trying to do exactly mm -hmm. and and it's actually quite interesting because they're sitting there like <laughs> thinking like why do we have to suffer in childbirth right, right. Uh, the right. women there don't realize why they should have to suffer in childbirth, right? Isn't an easy thing to give us morphine, right? And they're not getting it. And they're told that that really funny story. It's like, oh, birth and child, like pain in childbirth is a capitalist problem. <laughs> <laughs> but what does she end up doing? <laughs> she ends up name calling her husband, right? And mm -hmm. saying, well, my husband's powerful. You better give me morphine. Right. So it's the same as the, the what's his name? The chew skin. I wrote this all the day. Yeah, skin. I, like the same kind of, I, you know, some kind of corruption at the end, right? That's how she gets the morphine. Mm -hmm. 
So nothing really uh, changed. I have a really good read on but that. But the scene. dreams are still there. They still believe they're going to get the painkiller, right? Except that younger girl is more cynical. Let's hear it. The teenager. Well, the teenager. Is more yeah, cynical. yeah. So I think yeah. that that's like I think that's like one of the most important scenes in the book, and I think it like happens when like the main thrust of the book is kind of over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I think it kind of like sums up everything that happened till that time uh, in Soviet history, sort of symbolically, right? You have this like, mm-hmm. uh, you have this person. She's like trying to give birth. Uh, I think she's like, you can look at her as like the communists, right? Like like the actual members of the party. Mm-hmm. And so like you know she's like trying to be like, uh, you know it's like this really painful thing. It's like not going well. She's trying to like like do this how she's supposed to, and like she just breaks, right? Um, she's like, I'm going to like. Uh, pull rank on you and like this is what happens to like like the communists over the course of the 20th century right is like they become like venal and like the people at the top like stop believing uh and i'm not saying that like she shouldn't have requested morphine while she was giving birth i mean this is also a fictional character so it doesn't matter but uh uh like uh i I think that there was like some real like heavy resonances in that scene where like the you know like what's going on and there's like you know, like they're relying on like lies to like ration goods, right? Like that's what's going mm-hmm. on, and that's mm-hmm. like, oh gosh. And she's just like, no, I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to put up with this, uh, and like I'm going to like seek mine. And you know, this is a very human thing, uh, but uh, uh, you know, uh, you have to. I don't know. I, I if like that's the attitude of the people like trying to like run this kind of project, it's like not going to work. Well, that's um, that that comes back to, you know, one of the great questions of this book, which is about um, planned economies of information and, you know, how you know can they successfully manage information in this case? Really not. And that's one of the arguments that you know I mentioned before, uh, free market uh, theorists and libertarians will make is you know, their argument. I think von Mises is the one that makes this most canonically that it's the, the market is the best way we've got to allocate that kind of information. To, to, to go back, I mean, the, focusing on childbirth, I thought was an incredibly important point because this, this hits all kinds of stuff. One of the things I love about the book is that it's, uh, it's very good at gender balance and, and that's important, not just for now, but also because, you know, for all that sexism, the Soviet Union <laughs> represented a lot of progress for women over what, you know, what, where things stood in 1917. Um, I mean, R- Russian to pick to pick one of the countries. Russia was incredibly sexist. I mean, like the 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 grammar for getting married, it used to be the uh, uh, the male takes the wife. It's possessed. I mean, it's actually the, to grab, right? And the opposite was the woman walks behind the man. Mm. Um, but some of the, the, so that progress is important, including seeing you know women as uh, as scientists. Right? That's very important. But also it points to something that becomes a nightmare for the Soviet Union in just a few years after uh, Khrushchev's fall, which is that uh, childbirth plummets for everybody uh, across the Soviet Union except in the uh, uh, Central Asian republics. And so the Soviet Union goes out of its way to encourage childbirth. Um, you actually get a military own, uh, award, Geroy uh, Mat, Hero Mother. Uh, <laughs> if you've had, I forget the number, they, they changed the number a few times. They did that for the Nazis, too. Yeah, well, they... they it, it's, Aryan it, mothers putting out enough babies for Hitler's war machine. Right, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a question of race, although the Soviets were terrified that only the Muslim-majority republics were uh, still producing kids. They're mostly worried, like a lot of countries are now, about you know being able to balance your economy when you have lots of uh, retirees and mm. not enough workers. 
especially when you're trying to you know grow your economy really hard like you are then. So there's a little a little look forward that way, which I, I thought was important. Yeah. And Will, you're absolutely right. When I'm talking about pleasure, I mean I'm not just talking about you know fun entertainment, but also um, necessary um, physical. Um, attributes and physical goods, everything from practical healthcare, like you're describing to of course, uh, you know, physical safety, housing that doesn't suck. You know, that's not just pleasure. I should have picked a better word for that. Uh, another book that Fine. was in this continuum that I forgot we did. It's very important. I sort of half mentioned the ideas, uh, the Treconomics, the economics. Yeah, well, I, I mentioned it, but yeah, we kind of briefly oh, okay. buy it. Yeah, but yeah, so Treconomics tre- so and... The Red Plenty in that book is the replicator, right? Uh, the industrial replicators, uh, which I assume can make other replicators, um, and the regular rec- repl- replicators that are always needing to be tweaked in Quark's bar or whatever. Um, this idea of a machine that can solve your wants, right? It's very interesting, but um, there seems to, like, just based on my own experience, like in the healthcare system in Canada, where it is, you know, it is 100% free when you show up, um, they they might give you a prescription, and that's not free, um, but there's some, you know, discounts or whatever based on your income or whatever. But when you show up at the hospital or your doctor's office, they just take your number and then they build a government. But what is a little bit hard to understand, and it's kind of Soviet in a certain sense, and it's not necessarily a terrible thing, is that um, unlike in the States where they're trying to oversell you on medical services, right, because they want to build the shit out of your your ability, in Canada they don't really care. (laughs) So you actually have to be your own advocate, right? If you show up at the hospital, there might be a little waiting line in the emergency room, but if you've got a... um, if you've got a, a cancer or whatever, or a surgery that needs scheduling, um, it helps to be vocal. To say, not you have to make noise. Uh, it, it helps to be vocal. So uh, it, it, it doesn't say, I'm going to call my MP, um, but it could be that. That could get to that. It could get to that point, right? And the hospital managers don't want to deal with that shit. Um, it, it is a kind of thing. Now, um, similarly, um, uh, if you've got like home care, one of the things that a new system that rolled out in the last 20 years, probably less than that, it's very interesting is, um, for disabled people. It used to be, you know, disabled people would have home care, uh, assigned to them, like an agency. Now it's the case that more and more, uh, disabled people have the ability to hire and fire their own employees. Right. So it's not an agency of the government, a bureaucracy that sends you a, a person and that person will show up at this time. It's you're given a budget and you get to advocate f- for what you want by telling your employee, please do this for me. Um, and yes, you can have that Saturday off, but I'm going to need you on Sunday. <laughs> and the reason you do that is because that person is the person best able to tell uh, what they're going to need is the person who's actually having the services done for them. You know, like I need my butt wiped every day. <laughs> I can't have it just on, on every second Tuesday, right? It has to be every day. Um, please uh, show up at this time. And if you're unreliable, you're fired, right? There's no complaining to the government. Government has nothing to do with it. Now you can lobby 
for changes to the pay because of you know COVID or whatever. But it seems it seems like a kind of a a mixed system to me, right? <laughs> it's not top down bureaucracy. It's um, sort of do what you want. We know what you need. You know what you need better than us. Do what you want. And it seems to work pretty good, right? So it's not that um, I think communism is coming up in rando conversations and people are denouncing it and randomly on Twitter, <laughs> right? I think it's that people are desperate. And what they do know is that the current system of capitalism fucking sucks. <laughs> and so um, it's talked about in this book. The big surprise for Marx was that the Soviet Union would be the ones who are the first to yeah. uh, to yeah. do it when in fact um, it's finally seeming to come to the industrialized nations who are least interested in market reforms like um, the United States right it just that has, there's been a decline in services from the government a decline in standard of living a decline since the 70s it's like well, of course, people are going to be upset with it. And if it goes on long enough, it's it's going to be guillotines and a revolution. I, I, I don't know when, but it's got to be. And so people must be that that must be what they're they're reaching out for anything. And there's this thing called socialism. There's this thing, thing called communism. People are going for it. In my in my view, that's what's going on there. Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's time to maybe revisit some of those. Why socialism never happened in America works. You know, there's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. couple of famous ones on that. Because, like, what's the arguments? Like, it's either the revolution, this, you know, this kind of libertarian ideal of the revolution, um, or the frontier, right? Or, but there's always like slaves or you know, land you could steal from the Indians, something like that, or. And then when that ran out, you had the you had kind of the new the red scares are, are the, yeah, the, I guess you have the red geez. scares too. But right. all that's kind of running out. The, 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 the argument why the, the explanations of why socialism didn't exist in America are kind of running out, right? Yes, yes. They're they 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 I mean they're literally doing red scare when they're not they're not communists, right? Well, one of the Russia, 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 and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, one of the great reasons why you don't have um, socialism in the U.S. is the Democratic Party, um, because you know, we only have two parties. Uh, we don't. We're the only country, one of the few countries that doesn't have anything like a labor or workers party. Um, and the Democratic Party has, up until this year, been pretty efficient at quashing its left flank. Um, you know, yeah. Occupy protests were quashed entirely by Democratic governors and mayors under a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to uh, Woodrow Wilson, who managed to jail uh, a socialist presidential candidate who ran for office. And the Beatles prison. by Philip um, K. Dick. I mean, one of the things that the just... Populist, the populists getting kind of co-opted mm-hmm. by the... Yeah, yeah. And then the populists are interesting because they're this weird uh, transpartisan... Um, you know, shambles all over the place, you know, they're kind of kind of left, kind of right, kind of we don't know what kind of politically non Euclidean. Um and that's you know, that's just pretty, upset with the status quo. Yeah. And that's but also, also in an anti elite sense. And again the Democrats have been yeah. very good at this at, at recuperating that as opposed to the Republicans who usually, you know, uh their right flank is, is much more powerful. But right now you have Biden and it's it's striking because this is a classic Democrat who's been very centrist, very pro police, very uh, one of the guys who made student loans so terrible. 
Um, you know, and suddenly this year he seems to, you know, be open to the left. And so far in this presidency, he's done a lot of stuff. I'm very suspicious. Uh, I'm very skeptical, but I'm I'm watching closely to see uh, see what he does. Um, but again, I, I'll go back to the generational argument. Um, you know, I talk to people over fifty; they are Pavlovian um, when it comes to socialism. You know, they're, they're, and, and you get this you get you get a lot of idiotic Democrats. But I repeat myself. But who who will who will accidentally slip and say things like um, they'll say the Soviet Union, they'll say Putin is communist, you know, yeah. they'll make all these, and, and you could tell they're just, it's just an old habit. Um, and they're not even thinking. It, it, it's 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 absolutely reflexive, and it doesn't make any sense. But no, it doesn't it, have to because it's moronic. It's it's, it's like they don't want to hear about it. Well, it, it's like when people would call the Soviet Union back in the day, they call it Russia. I'd say, no, that's not, you know, I mean, but, um, but I think people under 50 and just haven't had that experience and they can say socialism and it sounds kind of interesting. This is what Scandinavia has and it works pretty well. Or of course, that great object of desire, that great source of longing for Americans on the left, Canada. Oh my God. You know, I mean, uh, I'm going to flee to if X becomes president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, of course, my wife has Canadian citizenship. So every every time a bad thing happens, like she's like, so should we just go there? I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be too close to Jesse. You know, that (laughs) probably unless you're coming over this side, it won't make you any closer. I know it might make you farther. I know, well, it depends, um, you know, it's a big country. Uh, friends, I'm I'm running out of time. I have to uh, call my uh, one of my parents back because he's in the hospital. Um, so if 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 you want to keep going, um, please feel free. But I'm I'm going to have to log off. No worries. Cool. I, right. I have some closing right. comments uh, that are are actually from Francis Spufford. All right. Oh, great. That I'd sounds love- great. But thanks for bringing up the 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 gender issue too, because that's something you saw in China as well. Like. Mm-hmm. One thing that really struck me when I was teaching, um, you know, when I when I got this job to teach at an AP center, I had to teach like human geo, right? So I had to learn all that stuff, and I was putting together my thoughts about like demography and population, and I, I found this nice like chart that said like how long did it take different countries to go from like a fertility of six to three, right? Which means a woman would have six kids versus three. And it took like the U.S. 90 years or 95 years to go that far. But it took China like 10 years. And it was like by the sick, by 1970, they were already at a fertility of three. Right. So even before the one child policy became oh, yeah. law, no, like, it, it, Chinese it, birth rates are already on their way to one child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, there are basically two very, very small exceptions. Um, uh, parts of the Orthodox community in Israel and, uh, yeah. and parts of the Mormon community in Idaho. But otherwise, once you go through modernity, your, your child rate just plummets like mad. Um, but, but the thing about China is like the first thing they do, like, except the land reform is the marriage law of 1950. Right. right. I think it's one of the most revolutionary, like, laws yeah. ever passed, really. Well, this in, in gender, you know, it's a revolutionary in terms of gender because one yeah, of the yeah. most oppressed, the most oppressed women probably in the world at the time. Were, uh, I, I, this, you know, I think this is this not is fully liberated, but you know, I, I think this is global uh, for for uh, you know uh, the, the left in the 20th century for the or at least those with communist state power. I mean, this was a very important theme. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, I want to I, I want to close this up by tying it to the the education themes that we've been talking about. Um, mm-hmm. There's this uh, I uh, this is like not central to what we're talking about here, but there's this uh, really good. Um, uh, historian uh, Lars Lee, who's like done a lot of work on Lenin. I like think that like Brian has like probably read him. Um, the uh, uh, I read this like short biography of Lenin by him, and he draws this connection uh, between Lenin's parents being this old style of like uh, like intellectual or uh, education reformer that gets talked about um, at the beginning of this book, uh, at the beginning of Red Plenty. I mean, so like those are who like Lenin's parents were, and he ties that to like educating all these people and the birth rates uh, dropping in the Soviet Union after uh, the revolution. So, um, I don't know. I think that's like kind of an interesting resonance. Um, but uh, the, what I want to close with is, so I uh, like became aware of this book because um, Francis Buffer donated a bunch of copies to it to a fundraiser for an organization called Philly Socialists. Um, and uh, they had like a, a uh, they had like a public service program that they were calling Red Plenty at the time, and he like thought that was so cool that uh, he uh, <laughs> was like, "Oh, here's some books, guys." Um, and so they gave uh, a co- one of these copies to an organization that like no longer exists that I used to be in. And uh, Francis Spufford's inscription is, "In hopes of 21st century socialism." Mm-hmm. And so I think that's like what this book is about, uh, and like why it. Uh, you know, closes with this conversation. I really, really loved the conversation between the, the planner and the apparatchik about, or like the economist and the apparatchik about, uh, you know, like why they weren't like adopting his like awesome plan. Uh, and it was like, it's pretty convincing. He's like, we need like stability guy. <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, but maybe what you're working on will be important someday. And I, I, I do believe that like, uh, <laughs> like the efforts that were like done in the 1950s by these scientists, like they're not wasted. We're talking about them. And like, like I do like believe that it is possible to like organize like a human economy consciously. Uh, I really like that phrase conscious arranger. It like reminded me of like something Olaf Stapleton would say about like, <laughs> like an alien planet that was building socialism. Yeah. Uh, this could have yeah. been an alien planet book for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh anyway, I, I, I think that it's like a sad book, but it's also a hopeful book. So I'd like to close with that. Nice. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. That has like a special relationship with a person. I like always find that like to be exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, are there like uh, like themes about colonization? Like it doesn't even have to be an anti-colonial thing. I'm like interested in reading colonial things too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I'd probably read more colonial things, but like the the idea that you can like think about colonialism in, sen- in sensitive ways in this kind of fiction, I think, is really uh, appealing. Like obviously, most of the fiction does not think about it in sensitive ways. It's like we're going to like well, the Philip K. Dick is super fucking sensitive. He's almost, yeah, yeah. He's autistically sensitive, Evan. Mm. That's why you like him so much. Him and I think it's Lovecraft, like, <laughs> yeah, autistic I mean, spectrum guys. I don't, I don't, Evan, I don't know what I'm. Ta- I'm just making jokes. Yeah, Evan, give I want to give per- you permission to not care whether you have autism or not. Right? Like, I know you don't need that for me. <laughs> well, my my good friend's son.
I guess is on a spectrum. I just diagnose. <laughs> and I just don't like talking to him because <laughs> he's kind of annoying. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of that or just because he's annoying. Uh, you, you might be like not all not all autistic people are compatible, right? Like, <laughs> this guy's like, you know, like you're a buddy. Right, but you don't have the same interests as him, right? And he like is not able to read yeah. that you're not his buddy. Mm. All right, maybe. <laughs> like that's the, that's the issue, right? Um, uh, um, yeah, the uh, yeah, I don't know. I uh, is is the story that um, more males are are autistic than females true? Um, I, I don't know. I I think so. Uh, but like, it's also because of that, like idea that we have, like, it could be very easy for us to be wrong about that. Autism. I really male. have to believe I, I get too much tail to be, uh, <laughs> no, no, no like, that I'm is not... your autism. <laughs> yeah, maybe no, it is. Or maybe that's are... it. Maybe that's sexual autism. autism. <laughs> yeah. Like some autistic people, like that's like, like, uh, there's like no activity that you could four males for every in. one female. That like means that you're not autistic. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like there's not like something... yeah. That's the bit. That's what the, the the bit of the problem, right? If it's yeah, yeah, it's too it's too broadly defined. Like once you have a spectrum for anything, we're all on it. Right? Of course, <laughs> yeah. Like we're all in the bell curve somewhere. Yep. Um, uh, uh, in the bald curve. That's the one I like. <laughs> Am I yeah, bald like yet? I, Am I bald yet? No, I'm not bald yet. I'm still not bald. I have three hairs. I'm not bald. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Oh, I forgot. One of the good tweets about communism that I saw was uh, uh, my friend Sam Adler Bell tweeted that like if the Soviet Union were still around, like he believes that baldness would have been cured by now. <laughs> <laughs> it ha it sort of has been cured if you really care that much. But it's the, the point is is it's really stupid. Who cares? It, yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I'm a, I'm like very vain about, about my hair, but I'm able to like empathize with bald people because like I like can't grow facial hair, so I like understand what it's like to not be able to do something other men can do. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, well, but, uh, I, I want to yeah. point out the um, first uh, theory under explaining the gender diagnosis disparity for uh, on Wikipedia is extreme male brain theory. <laughs> I, I'm familiar God. with extreme male brain theory. Dude, I think that makes sense. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yes, and like I just um, like that's definitely how like autism was like taught to me in high school, right? Um, <laughs> uh, like 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 that's like what they like told you autism was. Yeah. Uh, and I like. It's funny. I guess. Yeah, I like. I don't know if I like. Like believe that still, right? Like that's like I, I need to know. I haven't like read what it means for autism to be an extreme male brain, like other than just like thinking about it in my head. Um, uh, or like I also think there like might be like uh, like an assumption in that idea that like like men are like inherently that way <laughs> that like might not be true. Um, what was the the awesome theory? Did I send it to both you, uh, Will and Evan? Um, uh, if you're wondering, uh, if your gen, if your gender is, uh, if you're questioning your gender, you're female. <laughs> if you're questioning your gender, you're female. Yeah, that's definitely not too nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, where's the lie? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think a better version of that is, um, like, if you're, like, somebody who's, like, worried that you, like, 
like might not like really be queer, um, then like that means you're a queer person. Uh, you're worried you <laughs> might uh, not be queer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is like a real thing, right? Because like it's like I'm worried like, I'm not queer. <laughs> Therefore, I'm queer. <laughs> then yeah, it just puts everybody in the weird tales section. Your your mic has gotten in and out. Oh, sorry. I was I, I was holding my phone very sloppily. Don't do that. I uh, know it's a crime. It's a crime. I uh, you know, like Stalin would have killed me for it. Khrushchev would have fired me for it. And like Brezhnev would have left like, left you do what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. he would have like do, uploaded. You the, do you? Yeah, upload the podcast with bad audio, man. Mm-hmm. No problem. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so we've got, uh, a couple things scheduled, uh, um, Jesse, would you be interested in doing some H. Ryder Haggard at some point in, like, April or May? Sure. I mean, we have to find the audio for it, but yes. Um, I did, uh, I, I, I was thinking, um, that Viking one sounds good. Um, yeah, I'm down for that. That sounds um, good. And I, there's, yeah. it's on LibriVox. Yeah, we have to make sure it's a good quality, um, so, uh, the reason I, I got the Mad King out was because... I've been so obsessed with Prisoner of Zende again, and it's such a good book. It's so well written. Um, it's such a smart structure. I just couldn't believe how good it was. And then I was thinking, oh yeah, there's that. So I um, processed up the um, the uh, Ace book, you know, yeah, um, the Ace version, and I found the original art and put that inside it as well. Um, so it's going to uh, be for the Mad King. You mean the Mad King? Yeah, I did that last night. Oh wow! So you did the so it's like the Ace Book publication from like the sixties or whatever. Yeah, and then with uh, and then you Frank Frazetta cover. Yeah, and, and I put the Frank Frazetta art inside it as well. Yeah, you dig that? Cool. Out um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think there might be something farther down on the sheet as well. Um, that was added. So if you're on the page have a look while i dig out the mad king trying to... oh jesse i have to go over this outline with you right? oh yeah I yeah down. that's I'm i gotta jot down my that. chapters for this sex and star trek book maybe, you maybe gonna... will can help here too can you um put it into the chat so that i can look at it rather than make notes over it or google doc it or know. whatever it's pretty rough it's just some ideas okay but so i have to say so I think I want to start with these three trips to Ryza. Right. Oh, so, like, I like that. I, I love that. Enterprise, Next Generation, and DS9 both all have Ryza episodes, right? And they're yeah, kind yeah. of thematically different. Like, I think it's mentioned in Voyager, too. Pure pleasure. Does Voyager ever go to Ryza? No, they talk about... They talk, actually, they talk. there's an episode where Paris... No, no. Kim shows up on, on Earth for reasons, and... He goes to visit P- Paris in the bar in France that's also their holodeck place. And I yeah. think his girlfriend, wife, or fiance says, uh, y- you just went to Rice or something. Mm. Um, so it, Rice is mentioned, but it's not, they don't visit it as far as but I anyway, know. Anyway, it's like, so, so you've got like the, like the F- Enterprise episode on Rice is just more, more for fun. It's about pleasure and it's about like Hoshi getting laid and stuff like that. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and hey, so like that. Jesse, you know then how next I generation going to be on Tony and the Beatles? Yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. I, I just yeah, uh, well. I, I might have to cut out, so I have to interrupt you. I'm very sorry. Yeah. That was very rude of me. Um, That's okay. um, the uh, 
So uh, I forgot that like next weekend is like Valentine's Day, so I'm like definitely not going to be on. The okay, podcast. sad like, story. I will read Tony and the Beatles, but I'm like not going to be on the podcast. Okay, no worries. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, oh, okay. So you, oh, I see. Look at the second page. Is the original art for the Mad King? I put it oh, in the I'm, group chat here. Oh, cool, cool. Frazetta. The, the calendar. Yeah, but um, anyway, I want to hear. Uh, yeah. I think Keep I'm going to leave in like. I'm going to leave in 10 minutes, but I want to listen to everything it has to say. All right, so I can, I can kind of jot that. It's just like one page. It's just basically like chapter headings. Yeah. But but Jesse's been giving me a lot of notes. I've been taking notes watching Star Trek. So anyways, the set, the TNG episode, it's a bit harder. The Rise episode there is it's it's actually got a lot of Riker stuff because Riker went to Rise it before mm-hmm. and, and plays that trick on Picard. Like, get the, <laughs> the statue. You need to bring me back a Horgon. Yeah, yeah. So, but the sex horgon. I feel like kind of the. Uh, it's not a trick. Riker, Riker has Picard's best interests at heart. He knows yeah, Picard needs to get some. You know. That's still a trick. But the most interesting one is the DS Nine one because that's really about like this moral reaction, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a. It's that's a, that's more interesting. Too too much pleasure. That's we're right. Too post scarcity, right? We we're not up for this. That's right. But anyway, so I think we need like a. Section kind of exploring. Kind of, this is like getting kind of from trichonomic. Like you explore sexuality. Science. Somebody's it's microphone kind of is survey. being waddled or something. Is that? I don't think it's me. No, I think it's Will's. Yeah, I, I think, think I was rubbing my finger uh, over my microphone. Don't like, do that. Don't do that. All right, but just kind of survey some of the themes and sex and science fiction. Yep. Right. That that's always useful. Three trips to rise. Uh, three chapters. Three sections. I definitely sections. want to have one chapter on like because the one thing that bothered me with Picard is like these two people are having sex and then like they get a call to go to work and I'm like no that's wrong it it should be the other way around. Wait 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 wait. They should be at work and get a call to have sex. Yeah, because oh. that's how it is in, in Next Generation, right? Like 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 work never interrupts sex. It's always kind of the other way around. <laughs> And even Picard, when he goes to Riza, right? It's like I want to work. I want to stay on the ship. There's like, a no, Voyager no, episode where where um, uh, Chicote sees a couple necking in the in the turbo lift, and yeah. then he goes and has a talk with uh, with um, his boss, <laughs> my boss, uh, <laughs> uh, Janeway, um, and says we're gonna have to have a policy, um, and then some. And we've never seen before says I'm pregnant, um, <laughs> and the one right before that be what Voyager is like. Like yeah. Voyager should have just been like one big like orgy. Well, they they even say real life, generation right? starship, right? They call it a generation <laughs> starship, and just like whatever. But uh, there's like, also philanthropy like, in space. There's also yeah. an episode where um, Cass um, goes into puberty at age one and a half. <laughs> I love this well, one. Remember, she only lived like 13 years. No, no, seven years. Seven, seven years. years. Thank oh, you. Yeah, geez. Geez. Yeah, it's not very long. Anyways, she's like one and a half years old. She starts going into puberty, and then uh, she says, I-, I can only have a baby once in my life. Uh, Neelix, I want it to be with you, and he has a crisis, doesn't know if I, he wants to be a father. Have, and then her hands yeah. go, get all sticky. <laughs> yeah, and they I have, have to... Have problems with that. <laughs> Evan, they have to, uh, like... Be um, bonded, I guess, in the sex act for like five yeah. days. <laughs> five, five, what? Five days. Five days. 
Like oh. actually, the Denopolians are are they're an enterprise. You never watch. You didn't watch much of that, but they no, have I mean, one of the more interesting like sexual cultures because they have like these line marriages and they're very a social species. Mm. Like the doctor in Enterprise, he's the Denopolian. They they and mentioned they a, Breen like, also. They, they, they marry multiple women. The men marry multiple women, and the women all have multiple husbands. So it's kind of like the Moon is the Heart's Mistress line marriage. Yeah. But even more. Or, or Friday. Yeah. Yep. So there's something about that. But uh, there's got to be something about work and sex, I think. Work and trekking. Like, and then the, like, it, was something, it was a quote in Trekonomics, or it was mm-hmm. a passage of Trekonomics, where the suggestion is like the women on Risa aren't paid because there's no currency. Right. So they're like banging tourists to. Now, um, another thing that he left out, <laughs> whatever the, whatever, no, it's, said, right? it's like being artists, right? You know, it's just yeah. what you do. Um, or it's I, like maybe the temples, the, 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 the like Venetian temples and the right, Roman empire. Right. right. I, I want to so point out that what, that Voyager, what's the, the Esri quote you gave me? Like these, all these pronouns are making me dizzy or something. I don't remember. That's gotta be the name of it. That's chapter. right. Yeah. That's right. All That's these good. pronouns are making me dizzy. So, like, all the queer stuff. And like, <laughs> the Tuvok one <laughs> he sent you recently. Was, yeah, the, yeah, there's I lots of the great quote, like, Esri, where she, because she's dealing with, like, coming into terms with all these previous hosts, right? Right. All these pronouns are making me come <laughs> there, making me dizzy. <laughs> maybe I'll get me in trouble with people. <laughs> That's on, great. Uh, um, to, this but is the I, one I, I sent you on Saturday. No Tuvok. Enterprise. It appears we have lost our sex appeal, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there has to be some kind of like fictional interlude, almost notes from the Enterprise Human Resource Officer. Yeah, the counselor. They're always missing this. It's like right, the right, HR right. person. Yeah. So like Riker gets called in to like the <laughs> HR officer. Or something. We don't like the way you're straddling oh, the we chairs. Got, we got this report with this this complaint from 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 Ensign so and so. <laughs> um, but then a the whole lot on dating and family and just different cultures. That could be a whole check, right? There's a whole yeah, a whole I, bunch of cartoons yeah, about like different family. I, Chief O'Brien's uh, sex life. It, it, yeah. uh, interspecies romance and marriage. Yeah, interspecies so, But that's a whole other chapter, Paul. Like aliens, robots, holograms, and sexual frontiers. Mm-hmm. I'd like or, to help you, or, with or those even chapters. within the crew itself. I mean, the whole Bolana Paris thing. Yeah, there's a there's a, a lot yeah. of that, and there like in the first season, there's this great uh, wharf quote where like they're, they're just like locker room talking, him and Jordy, because that's when Jordy's on the bridge, and they're like locker room talking. Mm-hmm. And like, in my experience, human women can't handle Klingon sex. They're fragile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're too fragile. <laughs> yeah, and then later in DS Nine, it turns out the Trill are, pre- are can, can give as good as they get because we see Worf a little beat up. With his bouts with uh, Jadzia, so yeah, yeah. Um, then we need something about just about gender equality, and that that being part of the Star Trek mm-hmm. kind of ethos. And then, and then I think not uh, gender superiority because you know, that's politics. Because I don't really that's know how to the later include, Star like, Trek's discovery in this because discovery is gender superiority. Sets, females it's, are boss. It's got a lot of sexual politics, right? Yeah. And less like, sex, yeah, less very sex, sex, consciously political in its depictions of of like gender. But Don't forget about that. Picard's terrible we need sex. To find stuff. you a friend who likes Discovery to like talk to you of, about like just 
Like, because I, I, I think that like you can do like a really good like takedown on Discovery, but I think it'd be good to like talk Dude, to somebody who like the Star Trek likes. communists like, started following me. Discovery's so. reactionary. <laughs> that, that's I, I kind of gave this argument to Jesse before. I, I yeah. think Discovery's actually reactionary. I agree. Like, I, I agree with that for sure. It's use of emotion over yeah. like reason. Yep. It, it's 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 almost fascist. In, uh, in, I don't think you can something. say that Discovery is almost fascist. Um, like, I think you can. I think you can. Uh, it's it's, kind it's of this, 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 like this. It's intolerant. That's very fascist. Like this, it's very intolerant. Sure, emotion and feeling, uh, and and, and, and all the use of the mirror universe is kind kind of handles that direction. That it's at least talking about fascism and imperialism in maybe ways that Star Trek generally doesn't. But but Discovery itself is not like a fascist TV show because the people in it. No, 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 that's what Evan said. I think there's some kind of reactionary politics going on. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. But I like, yeah, I don't know if I'd go that like as far as to say it's like almost fascist. I also like don't think like emotions are inherently reactionary, right? Like like they're like like that's like part of your brain that like you have to like process things. No, but I think resort like like having this emotional based everything like. I think that's what Discovery does that offends me so much. Is yeah, you want to use your whole like, brain. I, every, I think yeah, the, every, it's the problem with Discovery. It. Yeah, it shouldn't only hit you in the feels; it should hit you in the in the frontal cortex as well. Yeah, yeah, and I, especially science fiction. But um, the uh, the thing that I'll say about uh, um, Discovery is, I think that like it works for people because they do a lot of like what you. The stuff that you guys don't like about it is yeah. You said something about this. You said something about this in the direct message, saying like, um, "What was it? Uh, Star Trek people are." What did you tweet at me, Will? And I didn't (laughs) respond. What I tweeted at you. I said, "Oh, I need to send you a spreadsheet as well." But basically, you said something like um, about the Star Trek people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here it is. No, that's it. Was trans queer Star Trek fans? I don't remember. What did I say about? I, I don't I remember. You quote about like how people like at, like how like young queer children like um, are really into like like rigid identity politics and fandom bullshit. And I thought that was interesting because like I think that like everybody these days is into like rigid identity politics and fandom bullshit. Like like across the political yeah. spectrum. That's what yeah, that was now. the one, but I can't find it. Yeah, I sent it to you in DM, and I'm I'm interested okay. in this because I, I don't really oh. have time to talk about it right now. But yeah. I, I'm interested in this because I want to like get to the bottom of. This because I think that like you know like people like freak out about like the like excesses of the like SJWs and like like my friends who are my age who like interact with like younger queer people are just like these people are nuts um, and uh, you know that's because they're teenagers right and like teenagers are nuts uh, uh, but uh, there's just like this big trend where like everybody acts like they're like in a fandom beef like you're like really devoted to something and you like want to go out and like fight people who like aren't devoted to the thing that you're devoted to and like and it's like your identity yeah. um, and that's like how like like I have like it's just like I see the people who like are using Twitter in what I consider to be the wrong way uh, and it's like oh my god like you guys are just like like seeking out like uh, like people who like make you mad because you like being mad yeah. and like posting about it. Like that's what like like that's like. What was the one that I content? said? I said amused me, and you you were mad about. Um, Say, oh 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 the uh, the the one that was um it was a was it a was it a it was a it was one of Paul's colleagues at Tor right? I don't know. One. 
I have, Jamie I have Davies Nichols, maybe. I don't want to say it was definitely him. Uh, um, but it was like some tweet about how like Harlan Ellison was a bad person. Oh and, yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Got it on my Patreon. Right. <laughs> um, like, and it's sort of like I. It's just sort of like you're like. Like yeah, like everybody knows that Harlan Ellison was a bad person, right? Like, no, but it was that's like it was contributed to this book. But just know, I think he's a bad person. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> like that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, you 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 be, be surprised. I mean, that there are some reactionary old guard science fiction fans who who take umbrage at the idea that Harlan Ellison was a bad person or his work. Well, he's kind of an bad. asshole, they is what I would say, rather than bad person. Yeah, that's a uh, yeah. I mean, I think that being an asshole like can be like can like go over to being a bad person. Like, I, oh sure, but a lot of people who who are not ass like Obama's not an asshole, right? But he's a yeah, bad person. Yeah, no, that's true. But the, I mean, the issue was that like Harlan Ellison was a bad person in this instance, not because he was an asshole, but because he like um, sat on a bunch of people's stories and like you know, right. Like, and it was a very and it wasn't the boob squeezing or the um, you know. Being rude. This it is was that, that 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 problem of like editors. Like you can't include all the stories in Dangerous Visions, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know the backstory on this, but I also don't care. And like yeah, the fact that JMS J. Michael Straczynski is editing it, I think that that's sad because get your own fucking deal. You haven't had a good show since Babylon Five, dude. Come on. Ow. Dude, I'm not saying you're wrong. That's I'm not saying enough, you're wrong, Jesse. but ow, that that mark. It's, I'm not saying you're wrong though. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just like you know, uh, when you're uh, when you're when you're Mr. Straczynski, and like you like the problem is that like you get to a point in your career if you're like like where you can like do whatever you want, and like you want to like play with toys basically, yeah. and so like I want to like play with my Harlan Ellison toys. And it's like I feel that. Uh, I really no, like he's doing that. it for the estate or whatever, but. Honestly, fuck estates. Yeah, yeah, but like, I mean, I get the desire to like want to play with the Harlan Ellison toys, but it's like, it is like, there is something like, like if you don't do, I think like Tar- Harlan Ellison is one of the things where it's like not a toy you can really play with, right? Like, um, like you can you can do that with like Tarzan or Doc Savage, right? mm-hmm. you can like play with those things like forever for your life uh, and like make them your own. Like, I don't know if you can do that with Harlan Ellison, but I- I'd like to be proved wrong. Yeah. It's no, no, it's no, just a cash in. It's just a cash in. Who cares? So I'm going to send you the spreadsheet, Will, um, of this all the scan stuff. Um, it's on. I put it up on Paul uh, on Excel, Google, or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad. Brian had to leave because I wanted to talk to him about Pulp magazines. He's like one of the people who knows about that. Um, mm, I don't think he's. <laughs> I don't think he's major knowledgeable about it. I, I would go with pulp covers if if you want to. Deep, because that's what he, he does died, all day long. Yeah. yeah, Brian's more um, Russian literature, and uh, he likes American literature. But no, he's not. I don't think he's a pulp expert by any huh. means. I like had this just this wrong impression about him. Well, uh, you might okay. uh, you might be right, but I, he doesn't spend any time talking about it on Twitter. It's all, yeah, no, no, yeah. I was like, oh, Verso. That's so. Yeah, I I, like, I think I have my wires crossed on on like what uh, he's he's uh, he's very. Highly placed in the uh, academic con game, um, the uh, he, he his book is um, getting turned into an audiobook for by Tantor, so there's going to be a new book coming out. Cool. All right. Well, I have to. Yeah, I think I uh, sent a direct message to you there, so you should be able. To all right. Thank you very that. much. You're and, welcome. Um, I uh, I will. Uh, 
uh, I will uh, see you all in cyberspace. Sounds good. Yeah, you betcha. Well. Take care, Will. Uh, did you see? Uh, I, I sent this Twitter thing to you uh, to the group. I think you need to read it, Evan. It's really interesting. Uh, the, it goes: the commodification of queerness being fed straight washed media representation and mixed mixing rigid identity politics with fandom bullshit has actively fucked up so much of how the current gen of queers engage with the world, their history, they don't, and queer elders, disrespectful. This is a long thread, but basically it's saying um, the reason, (laughs) it's explaining why I think that Star Trek uh, exists. It's like feeding, it's it's like, it feeds. And then there's other people who I don't, like, I don't understand why Star Trek communist likes it. Maybe... I understand why he likes Lower Decks. I don't understand why he's discovering. Well, Lower Decks is a very obvious why. He, but, and he doesn't talk about Picard much, but I guess there's not much out right now. So that might be. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there aren't a tremendous number of Picard fans from what I see in genre anyway. It just it feels very <laughs> yeah, cashy dead. It's not, it's, it doesn't have the queer audience built into it, I don't think, right? Like, it's not a that, 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 particularly that, queer show. Thing. I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think Picard knows what it wants to do and doesn't go in. I mean, even if you don't like Discovery, at least, or Lower Decks, at least it's going in a direction and has, is trying something, even if you Lower Decks think it's isn't, absolutely wrong. Isn't going anywhere, but it's the best well, thing they've that done. The media's challenge to Picard, if you watch their review of Picard, it says, make Picard gay in the next season. <laughs> That's. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I'm sure the actor would be fine with that. It wouldn't be surprising if they did it. But who yeah, wants yeah, to I see mean, like, never a, an 80 year old gay android? Come on, years, but an 80 year old gay android. Well, now he's why a is robot, this? So. That's what I'm saying. Is like, <laughs> but you know, on on that other show, they're all young and hot, right? Even, uh, I guess the oldest actor is like maybe late 40s, early 50s. The Discovery, right? They're not that hot. That's No, they're but they're young. Like diverse body image. Yeah, but they're young like, and they have makeup. Really, like, this is one thing that really took me out of Discovery when I was watching this. Like, I thought that was like an inside joke that the trills are always hot. Like, they even do that in Lower Decks. Like, the trill is on the bridge. There's a trill on the bridge. Like, yeah. Uh, ops officer or maybe mm. she's the the helms person right like even she's hot mm. but they, they cartoon they, hot they didn't do that in discovery <laughs> where, where are the hot trills in discovery uh, like, I, male and female but see like, you're you're like, looking at it from a from a cis perspective like, if you could just look at like, look at them from the a girls, queer right? perspective you would be cool with it like Curzon got all the girls right yeah. You read on that? Yeah. And Jetzia? Jetzia got all the guys, yeah. uh, I guess, and some of the girls too. Probably. Was after Esri, right? In that last season. That's like yes. half the episode. Actually, I was yeah. I was thinking about Esri looks like the the type. She's like pixie type. It's kind of similar to the elf girl from Voyager. What's her name? Uh the Cass. Yes. Right? Yeah. She's got basically she looks like a little pixie or a little elf. It, it it's just the whole manic pixie girl. Yeah, and she yeah. she al- she also only lives seven years. It's like a kind of um, one thing I did notice this time in watching it is um, she's really good at learning. 
which I guess it would make sense, right? She has to be. <laughs> you have to learn everything very quickly. But the doctor keeps giving her homework. And basically, she turns into a doctor in about two minutes because she does all her homework instantly. And it's like she remembers all the de- everybody's room on the whole ship. Um, it's actually pretty smart in terms of an alien species. You know, if they're going to live a short period of time, they have to get up to speed real fast. Yeah. Picking up on cues and such. The other thing you need to investigate there, Evan, is um, she she says her, you know, Neelix is like always worried about being cuckolded, like all the time. Yeah. Um, but she comes from a planet where they basically pair bond for life. So she doesn't understand the um the His insecurities. Uh, yeah, and um they then uh they get into a food fight in the cafeteria over oh. her and go down it's to been a, while a planet Voyager. So who who is who makes moves on Kess? Uh Paris, Paris, but also the, he, he's jealous of the doctor at some points as well, but Paris is mostly the yeah. focus and um he's jealous of almost everything that Anybody who looks at her, yeah, he's a character I never really. It seems he's no, I didn't like him either before, but he's actually quite funny because he's he's a he's hardcore deep down because he like witnessed some war, um, and like saw everything horrible and 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 yet he plays the clown, um, he becomes a fairy godmother. <laughs> he, he literally he, he says Godfather earlier, and then no, you're the godmother. Later down, when they find some, when they go down to a planet and they find some alien hatchling, um, he becomes its mother. Um, and what's funny is he's willing to play the clown, um, but it's also all part of his plan. Basically, it's a survival plan, right? Well, well, well yeah, because remember, because because he he it's like it's like the second episode of the whole series. He he resells himself hard to stay on that ship. Yeah, that's right. He's like you need this, you need this. I could do this. Like I mean, he he. Yeah, but he sells everything. Like even the, even the. He's actually quite a good character, and uh, and uh, I didn't feel that at the time. I actually quite like the show now, which is funny. There's a lot of shitty episodes, is what it is. There's a lot of like. I think I still have a theory though. Like there was a bunch of like discarded plots in like the Next Generation or Deep Space Nine folder in the Voyager. Dude, so many of them are ripoffs of other Next Generation ones. Everyone salamanders if they go warp 10. Oh dear god, I hated that episode. (laughs) I think think it's non-canonical at this point. I think they decanonized it. The the Tuvix episode really was originally an Next Generation episode. It's a good idea. I I haven't got there yet, but... That that episode annoys me because, yeah, I mean, it's like because it doesn't, it doesn't really engage. They have a they have a Lord X episode. episode. They have a Lord X episode where uh, Tuvok does like basic training for um for some uh, Maquis Maquis characters, which I I was surprised. Yeah, I was very surprised by that. Like, I didn't remember well, that, he that- under, he was working, but he was like the. Double agent, right, or something. Yeah, he was a double agent. Yeah, but but uh, but more importantly, like they they're having discipline problems, like some people not following Starfleet policy. So they pick f- four random uh, young officers and uh, spend the spend the time mostly from their point of view. Um, yeah, but but yeah, to, yeah but oh, that's, said, that's what you mean. They do the lower deck episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah um, I want. Is interesting because he was. 
he he was he was playing you know, playing the double agent for so long. He has those unusual bonds and can see their point of view because he's lived it even as a double agent, which makes him an interesting character to me. Uh, and you wouldn't expect a Vulcan to do to, to be a double agent. It's like too logical. He actually to shows up on Deep Space Nine as that double agent as well. Um, I I want to point out there's an episode called Projections, uh, Voyager that is uh it's basically a redo of the Remember Me episode of Next Generation. Remember the episode where oh, the yeah, one with Crusher. Crusher is the only one in the whole universe on the ship. The ship is yeah, getting so smaller. That's the warp bubble, right? So in this case, it's it's the it's the same. It's the ship's doctor, and he's the only one who's who's human. Everyone else is a holographic projection, and they start being deleted. And then Barkley shows up and says, "You don't exist." <laughs> <laughs> you don't exist. You're you're my boss. Your hologram memory is error. You're under a delusion. It's kind of Philip K. Dicky, but basically it's the same premise. Um, and then uh, that one. Uh, there's a number of episodes that like he totally ignored that Sa- Sadu guy, Manu Sada, ignored um, Voyager like. They, when yeah. Paris buys, uh, this is part of that cuckolding, you know, cheating on your wife thing. Um, Paris saves up two weeks of replicator rations, um, in order to buy Cass, uh, or build Cass a, um, a locket, um, which he does. And Neelix gets jealous, but then she puts her photo, a photo of, of, uh, Neelix in it. So, like they're the, that whole the whole thing about voyagers because they're depleted of resources, right? They actually have to implement a kind of rationing system, which is an e- economy. And yet nobody ever seems to ration the holodecks, right? You would think <laughs> if you have to ration uh, power slash energy or whatever. Oh yeah, I was talking with a friend about this the other day. It's like I mean, th- there's only so many holodecks. There's only so much power. There's so many people. You would have a rationing system just because you couldn't, because just because of because of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And I could see how you could actually people could actually trade holograph. Time. Like, okay, I'll give you my hour of holograph time if you do this. Of course, it's almost be like a currency. Of course, and well, when, when he talks about this in the Trekonomics book, right? Like, yeah, but he doesn't talk about Voyager on the poker games. Right? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they. Maybe, but he yeah, ignores Voyager completely. Um, and there's a lot of Voyager, like when Kim is back on Earth, he talks about um, uh, money a little bit. Uh, he's got a, a coffee shop he always goes to, and then there's like he, he or, or, tra- or, or, uses or, or, transport credits to go to South Africa or something. Um, and then that there's an episode of Voyager called Prime Factors where they advan- they meet a super advanced alien civilization, um, and they don't want anything uh, except for their stories. And so they they download the entire ship's uh, you know Federation copyright of everything and trade it for some technology. Um, but it, what's funny is it's it's like the guy is who they're trading it to wants it not for money but for reputation, right? And so it's it's yeah, reputation economy. Yeah, and so. It's like th- this is stuff he just left out of the book. So you really do have to re- make notes of every goddamn episode, because otherwise yeah. you're you're going to yeah. suffer the same criticism I'm giving of 
that other book. And I, I think you don't want to do that. I think you want to have an yeah. awesome book. Oh, so, Tom, Tom we'll Paris. See when I get this done, you know, yeah. I might have a, a job waiting for me in Taiwan. Oh, cool. Turns out my, my wife's uh, university is affiliated with a high school, private high school. Mm-hmm. That's kind yeah. of in hard times. And they're trying to remake themselves into sort of like an AP center, kind of, kind of like the kind of place I'm teaching now. That's where the money is. And there is apparently a bunch of money to back up kind of building up this high school into something real. So they're considering me for like an administration, actually, a oh. curriculum development kind of position. That'd be exciting. Well, you get to yeah. be back in, in the be nice to have same country as your wife. Go back to Taiwan. Yeah. Rather than just spend some time with your kid. Yeah, but she's, a, you know, she's studying every day. Even so. You, you know, you're stuck in China but right now. If, like, I could justify taking like fifteen thousand of my earnings from China and using that to really build up a nice science fiction library. You know, actually, I was just rewatching some Simpsons episodes, and there's an early Simpsons episode where Martin is running for class president against uh, against Bart Simpson. Mm-hmm. And you know what his platform is? Mm-hmm. Martin's platform is a science fiction library. Seems reasonable. I don't remember that, but that sounds very Martin. <laughs> yeah, I favor that. So maybe I can build that up. Get the rest of those Library of America books. Your Which favorite. Like, Anyways, yeah. have you have you have you seen WandaVision yet? No, no, I haven't. I, well, I, how many I, how many episodes is like that? Kind of thing going on there. People yeah, are loving it. Very spoiled as what's happening, but I'm not, not going to spoil anything. I, I don't think you care that much about Marvel. I movies. I want you to tell me everything. I it's basically I have to pee, like but I blanched uh, after like Endgame and like reanimated Vision's corpse and created a alternate reality based on sitcoms, which apparently is what she must have watched in Sokovia. She just got, like, uh, American culture through TV. It's like uh, so I just, Love Lucy or something. So she just oh, created... Oh. She, she just enslaved a whole town of people and made them, like, characters in sitcoms. Yeah, which almost kind of reminds me a little bit of Eye in the Sky, in a way. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. are, there are moments, like, where there's, like, a radio... Because, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. is trying to talk to her. I don't know if it's S.H.I.E.L.D. or no, S.W.O.R.D. No, it's S.W.O.R.D. Swords trying to talk to her, because they don't know. They think she's maybe being trapped or something. They're trying to communicate with her, and then like there's this voice coming out of the radio. But it turns out Wanda's doing all this because she's just become a villain. Hmm. Well, but have Uh-oh. you seen the latest episode? Yeah, I saw the latest one where she she walks out and says, like, "How many episodes is planned?" Because I'll just watch them all. At I once. think it's eight, and we're up to like five or six. Okay, good. Yeah, I yeah, saw. Well, she comes out and says, "Leave yeah. me the fuck alone!" Right? I know what I'm doing. I mean, there's suggestions that she's not totally in control, but it seems she. Yeah, I'm yeah. That there's, she's there's, like there's, lo- the there's lots of, of debate. There's lots she, of debate. She stole Vision's friend. body, right? And yeah, so revived what's going him. On? Revived him really... to be his like weird sex slave. I, I mean, I mean, I think maybe she's not totally in control, and there's some other, there's something else. But what that is, there's yeah. a couple of theories as to what, what, who really is in control here, and I, yeah. it's Bond is not completely in control, but I maybe. like I, some I, of them better than others. So I hope. I, I think she's full of shit. Like she, she like, like oh, do you I'm have Disney Plus? Ball? I think she's. I think that's. I, do, I don't, but I, I yeah. have enough <laughs> friends who watch it and do that. I kind of immersed. I've kind of. 
Don't into what happened. So you're you're paying attention to it through through uh, someone else. That's weird. I'm, Other I mean, people, I'm just, I'm just yes. watching it, but it's got some Philip Dick vibes. So okay. you might dig it. I mean, I'm, I'm well. It sounds it like, sounds like people like it, so I, uh, that's a good sign. Most yeah. stuff fucking sucks. Well, that's Sturgeon's law, but yeah, well, I'm waiting for it to come on DVD or Blu-ray. I think it was the last episode. It's revealed that all this is taking out like taking place like a week after Avengers Endgame. So it's like yeah. she immediately like left that battle and stole Vision's body. And I don't even remember Vision dying. He died in yeah. like previous movie. I didn't remember. It's all Thanos a blur. Smashed his face. I remember. I remember something about that, but I. Yeah. It's all a blur. Yeah. The mind st- get the mind stone. From I'm it. really looking forward to this. Um, uh, have you guys heard of that other? There's another Ruritanian romance book series. Um, it, it's um. It, it's it's a uh, Gostark. Gostark. G a u Graustark. That's G r a u s t a r k. Fictional country in Eastern Europe used as a setting for novels by George Barr McCutcheon. That sounds familiar. Graustark. So apparently, in some. Uh, sorry, sorry about love behind a throne. That definitely sounds very familiar. Oh, yeah, it says, in Three Hearts and Three Lines, which I've read, the hero Holger Carlson gives his hastily constructed alias as Sir, Sir Rupert of Har- Graustark. That's uh, right! That's right! So Graustark is this Eastern European country um, somewhere in the Eastern Europe, and it's it's a series book, right? So, the, as with, I guess, um, Ruritania is a series book as well. Um so I, 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 but there's a bunch of silent films, and one of them is looks really cool. It has the female s- sequel character, um, dressed up in the military uniform of that country. So it's like a gender bent version of well, that's what I'm interpreting it as a gender bent version of um, Prisoner of Zenda. Uh, Beverly of Graustark. Beverly of Graustark, yeah. Yes. Starring Marion Davies. Yes. Davies. Yes. Oh, wow. And, uh, why, why don't we remake that? Well, I think fun. we need to read the I'm, book no, first. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Hollywood. Like, why don't you remake that? That'd be fun. No, they're not into It doesn't have any cachet. I'm but, but this whole remake mania. Like, here's something that. Remake. The only reason they remake Ghostbusters is because the people who saw it a long time ago are still alive and they recognize the name. It's not I know. There's glamour. I, yeah, I, right? I, I know the money and politics of remakes. Yeah. But yeah, that, that, that was fun. We don't even need to read. We just need to read the book is what I'm thinking. Um, um, if, is there an audio book? Well, there is, but there's a single narrator one, which I sort of demand. Um, oh, okay. But Beverly of Graustark, if you type in uh, that into Google Images, you see um, she's got a, like a sword. So it's like a, it looks really funny in it's comedy. Um, yeah. So type in Beverly of Graustark, G A R A U, Stark. Silent romantic comedy film. And then hit. Oh, looks like there's a YouTube. There it is. From the Library of Congress in Washington D.C. Beverly is invited by her friend Princess Yvest of Graustark to pay her a visit. On her journey, she is waylaid by bandits and becomes entangled in the political problems of a neighboring country. 
So that it's is, that is very very sequely, um, very sequely and very zendy. Yeah, but I I, I really like this um, because Zen- have you read Prisoner of Zenda, Evan? No. Oh, dude, it's really good. Yeah, oh. I saw that Futurama awesome. episode. What? Which? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. The, the Futurama episode. Prisoner of Benda. Something. Prisoner of Bender. Benda. <laughs> um, I don't. Re- well, anyways, uh, what's her of Benda? Yeah, yeah. Like the professor fixed his mind switching machine. All the main characters are switching bodies for various reasons. That's not. That's not. The plot is <laughs> not the same at all. But basically, but um, I, I, I recognized the title when I saw that. I'm like, oh, that. I think that's a novel somewhere or a story. Yeah. So it's by Anthony Hope, who I, I've never read anything else by him except for the sequel, and I I didn't really read that completely. Anyways, um. Uh, it's basically, it's like the Prince and the Pauper, except he's a rich second son of, um, of a lord in the UK who in the 1700s, his ancestor was impregnated by the king of Ruritania, Rudolph the first, right? And so he, he's at the breakfast table with his brother's wife. Um, his brother's not in the room and they're eating their eggs and she starts criticizing him for his hair um and the fact that he has he has no job because he's a rich uh guy with money to spare right um and he's like he takes casual offense and then the brother comes in and explains oh his hair is caused by and then he points to this painting on the wall of the ancestress who's uh had sex with the with this uh king of Ruritania right and it's it's sort of a Lovecraft story, but positive <laughs> and a comedy. And um, so he he decides to go to visit Ruritania for the current um, coronation. And when he gets there, he meets himself after falling uh, – meets himself. He meets a guy who looks exactly like him after falling asleep in the forest. And uh, when he wakes up, um, he's confronted by the king and they look identical. Um and then the the just before this is right before the coronation, and the king's brother, um, who's his half brother and who is black haired like his own brother, um, uh, makes makes um, uh, has a dinner party and drinks his brother's wine, and the brother's wine is drugged, and now he's out for the whole coronation, and if he doesn't get coronated, his brother will take the job, right? So they yep our hero. Uh, stands in, he shaves his beard, and um, goes to the coronation, and then uh, the king is kidnapped, and it's basically a back-and-forth swashbuckling thing. But the awesome part about it is the way the structure works, everything that happens could all be a dream, and it all mirrors the reality uh, of his own life at home. So it's all kind of like, it's not uh, about England, it's about the personal dynamics of having your brother's wife at the dinner table or the breakfast table. And, uh, it's a delight, but this it's, it's super light and frothy. Um, really it's not a comedy, but it plays like a comedy and it's super light. And it, because it's set in this fictional Eastern European country, um, you get like the opposite of the heaviness of, uh, reading a colonial fiction. <laughs> and I just, I think it's, it's just such a like cool dynamic because basically what 
if you think of what the psychology is, he wants that he wants to bed his own brother's wife, but he can't because that'd be wrong. <laughs> so he he goes to this fictional dreamland, and in this dreamland, he he uh, steals his brother's intended, who is an, a princess, who's also his cousin. Except they're not really cousins because they're distant cousins because of right. So. Um, it's just very complex and very light and very frothy, and it's like only six hours. Anyways, um, that's what this uh, this genre is, the Ruritanian romance and a Graustark. So it's, it's like, um, I don't know, rich people entertainment, but everybody enjoys it. In novel form. In novel form. Yeah, and there's been tons of movie adaptations. But yeah, this Graustark, I've, I've not read anything about it other than just what I saw on the Wikipedia entry here. But I think we'll start with The Mad King and then see where we go. Yeah, I'm down for it. I think it'll Let be me good. have it. I, I, I mean, clearly Paul Anderson liked it, so... You know, uh, yeah, I, this is this is the way you find good stuff, I think. Yeah, so, so yes, if, he, if, he, it's giving, if he gets the seal of approval, like, okay, sign me up. But I already like already like Prisoners End of long since, so right. like it's, not, it's not all it's, it's, it's sword fights fight. and uh, uh twins and Romance castles and moats. Yeah. Horse riding. It's like Zorro except uh in Europe. Oh yeah, so yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's not identical, it's, but it's the same idea. No, but yeah, but the same, the same fun. sort of feel. Yeah. And it, and it's from the top. <laughs> top down in the same way as well, right? In fact, there's a little bit of. If Evan's still here, I can't. Haven't heard from him in a while. I, uh, I'm here. We may have lost. I'm the, listening. Oh, I thought we maybe. There's a little bit of. Um, you don't notice it in most of the adaptations, but there's a little bit of class play as well because he's he's from the he's he's his his sister-in-law is a countess, um, and he's nothing, right? He's just a a gentleman. Twit. He's a gentleman. He he's a second son, right? He's a gentleman. And so when he goes to this country and he's a gentleman and everyone else has titles or military ranks, um, he's pretending to be the king. He feels like he is the king. He has to be better than the king himself. And they say he is, he's the best version of this family, right? And then in the town as he rides through this black Michael, the, the evil half brother, um, he's actually not even the main villain. The main villain is an up and comer who's actually a mirror for, uh, our hero, Rudolph. He's the evil version of Rudolph. Whereas the brother who is behind it, we actually never see his, his plans. We only hear about them through the, the villains, uh, the main, you know, the actual villain of the piece. And then in the town, as he's being coronated, he's going through the town, he goes through the poor section and the rich section, the old section and the new section, and all the poors are for the Black Michael, and all the riches are, and the new section are all for uh, the red-headed Rudolph. So it, it, it's very subtle. It's like, um, uh, it's kind of the anti-Lovecraft in that respect. But it's all about ancestry and sexuality uh, repressed, um, and it's 
it's like I just I I'm very admirable uh not admirable uh, ad- admiring of how it's such a well put together book. And I just think that's super cool. Like just having that structure where you it's like a mirror backwards and forwards and then he extends the mirror to spending more time looking at certain things. The princess um who he lies to through the whole thing ends up, you know, loving him even though he's lying to her. Um Princess Labia, yeah. Yeah, no, what's I can't remember her name. Anyways, Flavia. Flavia, Flavia. Flavia, Flavia. Yeah. Flavia. It's Flavia. Uh, I I know people who are named Flavia. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty rare name, but um it, in the sequel, um he has to come back and uh, defeat the the Hensau guy. Uh, who also has an R name, I Rupert think. Rupert, Hensel, yeah. right. So Rupert uh, versus Randolph. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, there's even, this is even that Doctor Who episode where they riff off of it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Androids of Terra. Right, so it's like... Or Tara. You <laughs> know, <laughs> six and one happened on the But it's about time for me to go, All right. Jesse and Evan. So it was a pleasure to talk to you guys as always. Yeah. Good episode. Yeah, I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Take um, care, Evan. You won't like it because uh, it's written by a uh, British guy. You're so goddamn nationalistic. Well, I can't read it. That's what I'm saying. You're too nationalistic. At least the Mad King was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. So I'm I'm only nationalistic about literature. <laughs> I've noticed. I'm a cultural nationalist. <laughs> cultural yeah. imperialist nationalist. Only about literature. No, it's... I, I do read some British people occasionally. <laughs> How you don't read any Canadian I, I people? I just one recently. <laughs> Did you? Or who? I forgot who it was. Anyways. Yeah. <sighs> it fell right out of the side of my brain. So, my daughter read Call of Cthulhu. And what did I she say? Shot over Innsmouth. And what did she say about calls? She's kind of cagey about like maybe she thought about story. She thought maybe. it was cool. She thought Call of Cthulhu was cool. It's interesting, yeah. But not my favorite details. But it's good. She read it, and hopefully she'll read Shadow over Innsmouth. Should intersperse some Poe or. Somebody else in there. Yeah, Poe. I, I have all the Poe in, in, in my room. Poe is amazing. She, just, she could just pull the book off the shelf. There you go. Give her, give her some Poe advice. Tell, yeah. her, tell her that the raven is not a raven. Yeah, your theory, it's a vulture. A turkey vulture. Mm-hmm. I, my theory's awesome. <laughs> He's so good. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm convinced. But, but actually, I was reading Lovecraft's letters, and there uh-huh. was a, like a book that came up. Yeah, you were talking about I one it, that he wrote it, that, or that he read uh, that he responded he was to. Talking to Elizabeth Tolbridge about this book he read, which I found out later was published in 1829. I can give it to you tomorrow on Twitter. Sounds good. Uh, the modern temper or something like that. But apparently it talked about Poe and the guy gave a speech about Poe because he talked to Long or Maurice Moe, someone like that, mm-hmm. about 
hearing about this speech he gave about Poe, and he wrote this book called The Modern Temper, and Lovecraft was really into it in 1929. He was telling all his friends to read this book. Sounds good. I'm into it. Uh, but it seems it's like literary analysis or something, so it may not be that interesting, but it's, it's something Lovecraft was really into that in 1929. Uh, as long as it's, it's well-written, uh, I'll be up for it. I got a pee, though. I've been yeah, right. sitting I'll on a big pile of pee for too long. Talk to you later. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye, thanks.